Welcome to another episode of the Frankie Lee Podcast. Our mission to empower others to break patterns, flip perspectives, so that together we have clarity, direction, and success way beyond what we ever previously thought possible. Here's your host, Frankie Lee. First things first, guys, before we get started with this podcast, do me a solid favor and subscribe to this on whatever platform you're listening to it right now. Whether that's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate if you just hit that subscribe button and it lets me know that the content that I'm putting out for you guys is hitting your ears at the right time. Much love. This podcast is sponsored by contentremover.com. So whether you're looking to remove any images, videos, search results, fake Instagram accounts, get in touch with us at contentremover.com. Welcome back to the Frankie Lee Podcast. Today, guys, we have a man who has worked with Alan Sugar who won The Apprentice back in 2015. He's a local lad to me. I've known him for a long, long time. Mr. Joseph Valente, welcome to the show. Hey, champ. How's it going? I'm good, mate. I'm good, man. Thanks I'm, for I'm, having me. I'm, mate, I'm hyped because obviously over the years, I've known you, I've known you a long time and mm-hmm. obviously obviously seen you win The Apprentice and come, come in from, from as a local boy like me. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Growing up around here and the things that the things, the opportunities and things that we have, to see someone doing well and doing bits and, and all that kind of stuff has been has been it's not only inspiring to me but I know it's inspiring to a lot of people because a few people have sit between me and you so someone's mum reached out to me the other day and said um, that her son had seen me and you talking in the sauna and obviously she, she her, oh, son, nice. her, her son's been getting advice from you at the gym so <laughs> obviously obviously like there's there's a lot of inspiration that comes from the yep. kind of stuff that you've been doing mate I just want to before we go into all like the winning of the apprentice, Impragas, the journey and all that stuff, before we go into all that, I really want to touch upon like growing up in Peterborough and what it was like for you growing up as a kid from your personal standpoint. So, you know, growing up for me was strange looking back now because it was very difficult. And the reason it was very difficult is because I had an alcoholic father. Um, and so... Um, times weren't good. I don't really have many fond childhood memories because of the toxic environment that I had to live in. So although as a kid you have fun and um, you know you enjoy life, there was always kind of this um, niggle in the back of my mind that where I lived and how we lived, something wasn't quite right. Um, and, you know, I grew up in Yaxley, I grew up in Peterborough, nice, nice village, it was not a um, really poor area or anything like that, but our family um, didn't have money, we didn't have cash, we didn't have um, <clears throat> lots and lots of opportunity. I have actually got um, a bit of a dodgy throat, I'm not choking <laughs> up just yet, don't worry, this isn't me getting emotional. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Um, but you know, we, we didn't have money growing up and it was very difficult and very challenging. And, um, I wrote a book, Expelled from the Classroom to Billionaire Boardroom. And one of the first chapters is a four year old's mentality. And I can remember back to when I was really, really young. I've always been quite aware, um, and I've always taken in my surroundings. And I looked at how we lived and I just thought, this isn't right. This isn't normal. There's what, more to life than yeah, this. There's yeah, more, there's more to life than um, this. Why are we struggling? Why can't we go on holiday? Why don't we have new cars? Why um, you know, don't we have kind of all the latest toys and all the latest trends that are out that other people had? And I, you know, very quickly began to notice as soon as you get to school at five, six, seven, that it was because my dad didn't go to work. 
yeah, all of the um, responsibility was on my mum's shoulders. You know, and I'm old school. I don't believe that's the way that it should be. I believe the man is the one that should make the money and should look after the family first and yeah. foremost. I'd never, ever let a woman fund me, ever. Um, and my dad was an alcoholic and he smoked a lot. So, you know, my mum worked kind of three jobs, you know, cleaning, dinner lady, and all kind of low-paying jobs. But she worked lots of them and worked very, very hard, plus had to bring up the children, plus have all the responsibility, plus obviously have, um, you know, not a nice relationship with her partner either. You know, you think back as the child, but as a grown-up now, knowing what it must have been like for her um, would have been extremely difficult to keep her life together and her mental health together and, you know, and all of that type of stuff. Um, and so... Um, you know, my dad then would drink all that money as well. So it made it even more challenging. So, you know, very early on, I realized that um, something had to change. And I, I wasn't going to live like this. I didn't respect my dad. I didn't like my dad. I love my dad, but I never, um, you was, know, was gravitated. He, was he violent towards you? Um, not extremely, but I definitely would get a smack. Um, probably more than normal, but it's not like he would beat the shit out of me. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like a dad that would beat you, beat you, but I'd definitely get a slap. Um, and, you know, is back in the day, that probably was a lot more normal back then than it is now. I think kids get in a smack. Um, but, you know, and I don't necessarily mind that because I was a cheeky little shit sometimes. So I probably yeah. do. <laughs> I probably did deserve a slap um, a lot of the time. But it was more of the environment that he created um, by kind of, it was a very regimented, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You don't leave the table till you've eaten your dinner. You know, you'd sit there until that dinner was gone, whether it was 15 minutes or three hours. You know, there's just a level of control, obsessive control across the board that was difficult and then do you obviously think you've taken that obsessive control into your life today because obviously like i see mm. the way that you're structured now yeah it's like you got to have the suit on you got to have the shoes on you got to mm. have the hair's got to be right everything's got to be right mm. set up i've seen as you've gone throughout your whole life you know the mm. structure in your business and everything you're doing now is is does that element of control come from the childhood um, maybe it does. It's hard to know. I mean, I definitely am obsessive um, in control. I like to be in control. I like to, um, you know, know what's going on at every moment. And I don't like things that are out of my control. You know, and that's strange because, you know, building a business and I had a business, a national business before, you know, people think that I'm very, very obsessive. I'm very obsessive with people specifically when I don't trust those people, you know. And so, if those people haven't proven that they can deliver, I will be a micromanager to make sure that they do get done what they need to get done until I'm convinced they can be left to do what they need to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and some people don't like that approach, you know, but, you know, I, I believe until they're proven that you've got to be kind of omnipresent and making sure that everything um, is locked down. And, you know, to build a business, you've got to be obsessive until it's self-sustaining as you're scaling and as you're growing. Growing, if things go out of your control, you can very, very easily, um, you know, lose control, and then that means um, bad things for the business. But we'll come back onto the business a bit later on. But but yeah, I think that, I think the business comes a lot later on in yeah. your journey. But what was it? So how was it going through school and life for you in terms yeah. of like educationally, GCSEs, all this stuff mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. me and you had to go through back in the day? What what was it like for you being me? Me and you are similar in the same in the sense that we're both 
very hyperactive energy mm-hmm. da, 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 in different aspects of our life growing up but how was that how was that correlated to your schooling and coming through all that like what was it well received because i know for me on a personal mm-hmm. level i wasn't well received in terms of like i was always in trouble i was always doing this but not as in trouble as in like you're causing problems just because you're asking too many fucking questions yeah yeah Is, was it similar for you i think that school for me was an opportunity to push the authority that i couldn't do at home because um you didn't fuck with my dad Right. When I was in a situation where I probably could mess with the authority, I would start to push the boundaries. So the older I got, the wiser I got, the sharper I got, the more of a rule breaker I became, the more of the limits that I see how I could push people and kind of push every environment. Because, you know, early on in primary school, I was a very, very good student. I was always in top of the class. I was always trying to get involved in all the activities um, and so on and so forth. But kind of towards the back end of primary school as I was 10 11 um you know me as I was kind of growing and probably becoming more of a young man at that point the conflicts with my dad at home were becoming a lot more um intense you know I was becoming a lot more cheeky I was trying to fight back I was you know pushing him you know and I was trying to I don't know I really lost any regard for authority and taking that into secondary school so my dad left when I was 13 um and I remember when he left it was like yes you know cheering moment celebration he's finally gone um so you celebrated your dad leaving the house yeah i did yeah i I celebrated him going because i hated him i literally hated him there was nothing about him that i liked when i was a younger kid i loved him but i didn't respect him i didn't admire him i didn't look up to him um what's your relationship like with him now i've not seen him for years and years and years and years and years i've not really spoken to him since I probably touched base with him. He reached out to me maybe a year or two after I'd won The Apprentice, but I'd probably say in the last 17 years, I've seen him maybe three or four times. So, uh, so, so I don't st- speak to so him So he now. still lives locally and all that yeah. stuff. But I, I'd, look, I had things in relation to my mum growing up, mm-hmm. like in terms of like, not that she wronged me or anything like that, but it's just how I felt our relationship was mm-hmm. and how it was with two different things. Looking at it with like eight-year-old eyes, four-year-old eyes, I struggled mm-hmm. a lot with feeling like love from her and stuff like yep. that. How how have you dealt then with the fact of this, this hatred towards your, to, you, you carry towards your dad? Because if you carry hate towards someone, you're still carrying some hurt. Yeah. So how have you, how are you dealing with that hurt and obviously getting that mm. out of yourself, you know, taking yourself forward because you can't you can't go through life holding any any hatred towards other people because it just eats you up inside. Well, you know, you're absolutely spot on and from 13 I became very angry, like extremely angry with life. Um, I had no regard for any authority. You know, when my dad left, you know, I just ruled the roost at home. I did what I want. I came in when I wanted. I was hanging around with, um, you know, seniors five, ten years older than me at a very young teenage age. Um, And so I almost just became uncontrollable. I was out of control as a teenager. And then at 14, my mum found a new partner um, who's become my stepdad. And I had a terrible relationship with him. He moved into my house not too long after my um, dad had gone. And my mum had reasons for being able to do that. But, you know, I am a I am an alpha. And somebody coming into my domain is a young lion. I I found it so hard having this other man that I didn't know in my house not that long after my dad had gone. I was like, how 
dare they bring this person into my environment and like that person trying to impose those rules on me um and he's a very nice guy actually my relationship with him has changed completely over the years and he's really soft he was nothing like my dad he was hard worker and looked after my mum and everything else but at the time i just couldn't see it i hated him with every ounce of um, my being i hated him um and you know i just became uncontrollable absolutely uncontrollable um at 15 years of age um, I was expelled from school. I wasn't showing up to school. I would do anything to not go to school. I was skiving. Um, I was hanging around with all the kids um, that had already been expelled that were older than me in the park, doing things we shouldn't be doing. And um, my life was not going in the right direction. It was going downhill fast. I was getting in trouble with the police all the time. Um, and again, you know, I was trying to push the boundaries with authority always. What can I do? You know, because people used to say, um, I always had this mentality, whatever I do, I'm going to be the best at. So everyone said, you're a bad guy, you know, you're a delinquent, you're this, you're this that, the other. And I always used to think in my mind, and I had, there was a time that came, luckily for me, this switch, and they used to say, you, and I used to think, you want to fucking see how bad I can be. Do you really want to see how bad I can become? Watch what I'm going to do next. And so it was almost like the intensity that I put into the positive in my life now. At that point in my teenage years, I had no mentor, no one guiding me. I was becoming a man. I had no one looking after me. My mum was always there. My mum's amazing, but she had a new partner now, a new life. I was just now on my so, own. So, so, so you essentially didn't you, you you essentially felt a little bit like when I left for Australia then. You did, you kind of felt like you didn't feel a part of or fit into anything anymore. You, you couldn't yeah. fit a mould. You couldn't fit a narrative. Mm. Locally, there wasn't there wasn't loads of opportunities. So you thought, Do you know what, there's got to be more, so I'm going to go and seek it somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I didn't feel like I had a family anymore. I felt like an outcast. I felt like the black sheep. I wasn't good to my mum. Didn't respect her in those years. Um, so, you know, they didn't want to be around me. Um, and I understand why. But you just make yourself more and more and more of an outcast. Um, and it's that bottled up anger that was destroying me. Um, you know, because I was just, I blamed everyone. It was everybody else's fault I never took responsibility for anything that went wrong it was always the teachers always some other kid always my dad's fault Um, but then at 15 years of age when I was expelled from school and I remember coming out of the headmaster's office and this was kind of a defining moment for me again in my book that one of the chapters is defining moments and I believe we have these in life and they're sent to us by the universe to say right what are you going to do now you're at a crossroads if you carry on going this way okay you can see what that's going to look like but I'm giving you an opportunity now to pivot and go the other way right it might be the unknown for you but if you don't make this decision now there's no going back yeah so when we walked out the headmaster's office you know my mum was crying um, she's looking at me and I was just like you know and she was like you're finished you know, you're finished. What have you done? Yeah, you, you're going to be, you're going to go to prison. Like, it's don't you, you're done, basically. And I remember looking back at her and saying, don't worry about me, mum. I'm going to be fine. Because I knew it. And I was like, all these people are giving up on me. What? Because I've been expelled from school. What? Because I've had a shit last few years because my dad fucked off. Right? And so it's kind of like, I am not this bad guy. You're put imposing your beliefs onto me. Yeah, I'm playing up right now because I'm pissed off. I'm hurt. I'm angry. But actually, um, don't write, don't you dare fucking write me off right now. Do you know? And so inside, you have to have that internal belief. And that's where I believe this belief came from that I'm going to, and then luckily, I said to myself, Joe, what are you doing? Get out of this life and go to this one. 
Yeah. Do you think you had to step into into another character to be to be able to do that? I think it was the same character, but change in focus. Grant Cardone talks a lot about addiction, yeah? And he said he had drug addiction. He said he had all these addictions, right? And a lot of people want to squash addiction. He didn't squash his addiction. He took his addiction and he put it into something else. His addiction became being the very best version of him. So he became addicted to work, you know, not having any white space on his calendar, filling his time, being the best, obsessive around that. So rather than trying to squash it, he, he, he just replaced that with something else and harnessed his power in that way does that make sense yeah so in essence you're saying then that it whatever you're addicted to just put that focus then into something else change the beacon into a positive light and i thought right actually you know what now i'm sick of saying i'm a bad guy i'm not a, i'm not a bad guy deep down i'm not this guy i'm a i'm a i'm a good guy let me show you how good i can be because it was looking at my mum's face that i realized that you know and i love that woman woman more than life itself right she's she's the number one and when i realized how disappointed she looked I knew that I couldn't continue to disappoint her so I was like right screw this I'm going to show her I'm going to make the girl proud yeah I'm going to make the woman proud now but first and foremost when I mean look my mum's been disappointed yeah. many times in life but and lots of people become disappointed mm-hmm. in other people yeah but the but the one thing I that I know for sure is the fact of like you it can't it, Obviously, it has to be about something bigger than you eventually, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it has to it has to first and foremost be a selfish thing that you want to improve for yourself. It yep. can't be I want to improve for my mom over there yep. because if 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 it is for that initially, you're doing it for all the wrong fucking reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? You have to open yourself mm-hmm. up to be to be able to to see the bigger picture for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you kind of that's what you kind of did. You took you took you t- you like do you know what I'm. You will reinforce it if you if you tell yourself you're something every day of your life, you become it. Yeah. So yeah. You, by you telling yourself every day, oh, I'm this bad guy, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, you're you're becoming this thing and you're acting in a way that's not congruent with how you want to be. Yeah, exactly right. Do you know what I'm saying? So Completely t- agree, yeah. Yeah, and you've got to take yourself forward you have to how did you break that pattern then? Well, I mean, it came from that defining moment where I was just like, if I don't do something, my life's going downhill. I never wanted my life to go downhill. From going back to when I was a young kid, right? I um, and I believe this has had so much influence on my life, and um, this is what defines people a lot. I believe so. My dad was an alcoholic, didn't work. Yeah, I used to see every day before I'd go to school, he'd be there, um, you know, still in bed or whatever. And then when I get back, he'd be doing whatever, drinking or whatever, right? So then, um, you know, never dressed smart shitty car didn't work no motivation but I had an uncle right my mum's brother my English uncle right and he was extremely successful yeah he dressed like I am now yeah in a suit always looked sharp he'd come to Peterborough once twice a year he was a tall guy like six foot four so he was always quite a present figure you know walked with power commanded um, respect when he entered into a room he always had money so you know people respected him and he was always able to take us places without any worry which is what I always heard from my parents like oh can we afford to can't we afford to he was just like he would just take us places and I was like wow imagine the power of just being able to look after people in that way or not have that worry and so he was my uncle and I was like 
how is there this guy and how is there this guy? Yeah, what choices do you have to make in life to end up like this? And what choices have you got to make to end up like this? Yeah, and I was like, I'm going to be this guy. I don't want to be my dad. I want to be my uncle. So he was kind of indirectly the figure that I became. And um, because he was my uncle and he was only one, um, you know, one place um, in front, he, he was close to me. He did. He wasn't this guy on a pedestal. He was on a pedestal, but he wasn't impossible. Yeah, so if you come from a council estate in a real shitty area and someone pulls up in a car in a suit and you don't know them, they're going to the next door neighbor's door, you're going to go, look at that fucker, right? Look at what he's been given. I bet he was family, was wealthy or whatever. So you can't associate... And- and, and that's where the resentment starts. And mm, you mm. cannot you cannot attract money into your life. You cannot attract wealth and abundance by cancelling it out, by putting out into the world that you are resentful towards someone else's success. Exactly. Because it doesn't matter how much success I have or you have or the next man has, it, the, the world is still abundant to everyone else as well. Yep. So like, if you're listening to this right now and you carry any form of resentment, then you need to let that go. It's why I was saying to you at the start of the podcast, about you know the word hate and the way that you're using the word hate and mm. that that when you when you if if you still carry that yes to some degree you can carry hate and use it as a driver to drive you forward and I know that you have to certain points you drear but there has to be a point where you have to let that needle go yeah to be able to accentuate otherwise you can't accentuate yeah and um, completely agree and I'll, I'll, and I'll when I hit about twenty six I'll come back to. Um, how I eventually let that hate go um, because it stayed with me, not just in my teens, it stayed into me into my late teens and my early 20s. It's been with me for a very, very long time because I was always bitter towards that person that was never there or never tried to but, rebuild but, but, it. But, but, but hang on, because I, 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 I did this myself, mm-hmm. right? I had, I had a bitterness towards something in my mind that had happened, but mm. potentially it was a different scenario when, 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 when you look at it through a different mm. set of eyes, yeah. right? When you look at it through an old set of eyes. So with, have you, did you ever put yourself in the position where you thought to yourself, hang on a minute, what is my dad going through? No, up until very recently, um, when actually, um, I mean, it takes a level of, um, it takes a level of, uh, life experience, I think, and as you develop and grow, to be able to get the perception that you're talking about. You know, now I'm a father myself, right, and I have the responsibility of being a father. Yeah, my dad had a, a very bad upbringing, right, which obviously he carried um, through his life. And I've always held in my um, uh, in inner um, being that I would never create an environment that in, in my son's life like that I would went through you know yeah. my dad chose to pass it on and couldn't let his demons go couldn't overcome his demons to be good to his son yeah so I didn't want to replicate that but we all have our own internal challenges the older you get the more you realize that everybody's battling with something right we, everyone we ever, you yeah. look at is holding some demon they're struggling with some issue mentally um, they've got insecurities or anxieties or worries so everybody's fucked up the, right the, the, to the, a level yeah the, the, the key thing the key thing that I want you all to understand is like hurt people hurt people yeah hurt people hurt other people it's like mm. The only reason why your dad was that way and the only reason why certain things happened in my childhood was because there was there was parts of these humans that were hurting in their own mm 
periods of their life and they hadn't dealt with their shadows. If you yeah. deal with your shadows and you answer your shadows, which is what you're on the fucking planet to do, mm. when you've answered those questions and answered those demons in yourself, you can be better and then you can inspire others. And that's and that's and that's kind of that's kind of the lesson of life that you kind of especially after I was 30, I, this is when it landed for me. Yeah. Cuz I I can't, I I <clears throat> I carried so much resentment for so much bullshit, Joe, like mm. all my life and childhood because of because of things that have happened. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And yeah. when you let it go, it's it's such a fucking freeing feeling. How did you feel when you kind of started to make peace with that? Well, what it was um, was that my dad had reached out to me. I was 27. I was doing very very well um in business um and financially and my career was going great I'd just won the apprentice i'd had a best-selling book i'd done a load of good things at the time and my dad reached out for me and he wanted help financially yeah as they all come back for money um in most cases right so he wanted help financially so he came to me for money now um i am um you know i he will always be my father whether i'll always be his son is a different story but my level of respect is well you know not you screwed me i'm not going to screw you so i looked after my dad um financially i helped him but very quick quickly i realized that's all he'd come back for and it did hurt quite a bit but at the same time the guy that returned was an old man you think 10 14 years is a long time to not see someone my dad was um you know in my eyes a scary guy when i remember as a child um and i'd grown so much more that i was taller than him he was quite old he looked quite um frail to a level and i was just like shit man all those years of me being scared of this person it's just now it's not the case and i'm and i was just like you know he's clearly not had a good 14 years yeah um and so but did you not feel some some kind I felt of em- sorry for him. empathy yeah i felt empathy. i felt sorry for him i felt sorry that um he didn't appreciate me because i could have changed his life um and but 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 he, he, the thing the thing that sticks out is the mm. fact of like you I don't know whether you whether you can see it clearly or not, but I can clearly see it from from the outside perspective looking in. Yeah, if your dad hadn't have taken the actions that you taken, whether they were good or bad, yeah. you would not be in the position you are right now because yeah. you wouldn't have had that drive to get out of the situation to change your fucking life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 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 that that's the most important thing. See, so. The, the way I've changed my perspective on everything is like if that hadn't have happened yep. I couldn't be where I am now and I couldn't have the learnings that I have yep. because I, I wouldn't have experienced that mm-hmm. so I'm thankful for the experience rather than resenting the the thing happening mm-hmm. do you see what I'm saying that's how, yeah, I, that's I, how I I've completely agree. Found and it's character it's character building and you know you look back and say would I be the man who I am today without all of that stuff no obviously not um, at the time going through it it feels like the worst thing yeah. when you get through it you look back and say right well I'm now 10 times stronger I can deal with so much more um, and I'm much wiser that I can ensure that the people that I influence moving forward don't have to accept experience what I experience because I can influence in a positive way Um, and so you know now it means that you know I might have if my dad was average and he was averagely nice to me I might have been an average guy right and then I would have been an average father right to my son because I wouldn't have known the extremes of good or bad it it was because Um, it it was because of that polarization yeah at the start yeah gave you that drive yeah because if you let I know because I didn't feel part of 
my family for different reasons than for you. But when I was a kid, I looked around and I thought to myself, I do not fit in to yeah. this narrative. Whether the narrative's good or bad, other people's opinions, doesn't matter. It's like the narrative that I'm in, I don't feel like I'm part of it. I feel like I, I feel like it's something more for me. Yeah. Right? So that's how I felt. Yeah. So whether you like it or not, you, that drives you to go out and fuck, all right, then if there's more for me, if, the, if, if this is my thing, if, mm. this, if there's something bigger... I better go and fucking find it Definitely. and take responsibility for it. <clears throat> and and I'm, I'm that's why now I'm like so thankful because I wouldn't have ended up in Australia. I wouldn't have got to number fucking five podcasts in Australia at the time if I hadn't fucking started to feel that kind of uh, that needle here, yep. which, which is why I'm so thankful. But then you then you leave school and you go into obviously your apprenticeship stuff. Yep. And you and you become a plumber. Yep. Right. And you you do your gas certificate and all that stuff mm-hmm. like. So you start making a bit of money doing that. Yep. Walk me through. Walk me through that. You see, so you as soon as I was expelled from school, the next day I was like, right, I'm not going to the park anymore. Right in the daytime. Yeah, I was still seeing my friends in the evening or on the weekends, but I'm not going to go hang around in the park anymore in the day. And there was a local guy, Darren Boardman, fantastic guy, um, who I respected a lot. He was in the same area. He had a brand new BMW. He always had a nice girlfriend. Always seemed like he had money. And he was 25 at the time. He just started his business, yeah, plumbing business. At the time, I'd heard plumbers earn £40 an hour. And yeah. for me back then, it was, you know, well, for, for, millions. For, £40 back in, back in our younger days was a lot of money, yeah. And um, so I approached him and said, look, you've just started your business. I'm expelled from school. I've got, no, I've got nothing else to do. Can I come and work for you? Yeah. So in year 11, instead of going to school, I went to work for Darren five days a week, unpaid for free. Yeah, for a whole year. I said, I work for free for a year and you put me into college when I'm 16 years of age, start paying me. So that's exactly what happened. He became like my older brother, like a father figure to me and I looked up to him and admired him so much. I went to work the next day and I became the best employee you could ever imagine. So I'd never disrespect him, never answer him back. You know, nothing like I was at school so, so, only a day before, you know. So so, so was, he, was he making you pick up and fetch stuff or, or was he like teaching you how to solder joints and start Yeah, to he do was all of it. Yeah, mentoring me, yeah, as an apprentice. A good apprentice is always there passing tools, cleaning a van, you know, mopping up, making the tea, whatever. Um, but also the um, business person should be training the apprentice and he was doing that for me. Uh, he put me through college at 16 and um, uh, I went through um, my college years from 16 to 18 you know I wanted to go to college I was hungry to learn it was a strange one because for a kid that hated school and every lesson because it was now I was in control and it was my decision the person that I changed into was this obsessed well maybe I'm always obsessed for this obsessed person of becoming the best plumber on the planet. I was like, you know, I think my mum must have seen at the time, like, how is this guy going through this transformation? Because she wasn't pushing me. It's not like kids' parents have got... What what was pushing you? The fact that there was no one there. That was it. It was Joseph on his own. My mum had got a new fella. She wasn't... They weren't wealthy. They weren't going to look after me financially. And I forgot to say, one of the lessons that I remember when I came out of that expelled from school meeting was I realised, holy shit, the cavalry isn't coming, Joe. No one's coming to save you, my friend. You are on your own now. There's no one to go to. Yeah? And that level of um, freedom that that created for me and actually responsibility in it's do or die now yeah you're either in this okay or your life's going to be ruined so I knew that there was no one left 
Yeah, there was no one to turn to. Everyone was sick of my shit. I was even sick of my shit. I was sick of my excuses. I was sick of blaming. I was sick of my life going bad because everybody else had done me wrong rather than taking any responsibility or accountability. And so now I always do that because... I never blame anyone for anything. Everything is my fault, even if it's their fault, really. yeah. So the day um, you walked into that plumbing job was the day you started to take accountability for yourself. Yeah. And the day you took accountability for yourself is when is the day that your life changed. The day that life changed, yeah, 100%. So that really, in, in essence, was your most pivotal moment because yeah. that was you accepting the fact of like, look, if I don't fucking sort my own shit out, take responsibility for everything that's happened to me in my fucking life, then I can't move forward. Exactly right and you know the level of power that that gave me because people blame and whine and moan about the government and the market and recessions and economy and every other person's fault as to why they're not where they want to be and that level of blame game will just hold you back forever yeah if you get if you get rid of all of that and say right okay if the government's this the market's this recession here money there whatever it is this is what I've got to work with I show up every day knowing what I've got to work with so I've got to get resourceful with what's out there things are always going to change markets will always change government policy will always change you think I'm going to let Boris Johnson influence my life really Boris Johnson and the decisions they make in the parliament are going to affect who or how um, I get to where I want to be or who I become no one is in control of my destiny destiny but me yeah and it was at that level that um, then things started to change so I was like right I'm going to hit this job I'm going to be the best plumber if I get to college at 16 I'll be a year ahead of all the other apprentices so I'll be able to smash it went to college for two years smashed it I was a year ahead of everybody else got to 18 and um, I wasn't working for Darren anymore at that point Darren had um, gone on to do other things and um, I went to work for a bigger company as an apprentice and at the time they weren't doing gas they were just doing a normal standard plumbing in old people's retirement homes so you did bathrooms and you did these electric water heaters so to go into year three at regional college to learn your gas and in in trade and plumbing gas is where the big money is so that's really where you want to get to just standard plumbing is not really what pays you know the ultimate money so my ambition was always to get there got to the end of college and um, I was getting paid 35 pound a day I was doing 14 hours I'd been doing it a day driving to Norwich every morning doing the day's work on site driving home leaving at five in the morning getting back at six at night 35 quid a day they had a top class plumber for 35 quid a day and the guys on site at that time that were qualified were getting 150 I was like man this is crazy I mean I was just as good as those guys if not better in some cases so I got my certificate, called the boss. I said, listen, I've just got the certificate from qualified. I want 60 quid a day now. Yeah, and I didn't even ask for the full amount. He goes, nah, Joseph, I'm only going to give you 50. I said, what, 15 pound increase? I've been doing this for the last year, coming to this building site every day, 14 hours a day, driving here, and you're only going to give me this much more. And just at that time, I'd seen an advert in the back of the sun, and it said, become a qualified gas engineer in um, something like 12 weeks. Yeah, and it was six grand for the course, and and at that time, eighteen, I couldn't get six grand from anywhere. It was a Did you lot have of any? Money. Mo- had you saved any money? No, nah, I hadn't saved any money. My, my, I was on be- very minimal money. I, lo- I left home when I was seventeen. Yeah, so um, my mum kicked me out when I was seventeen. Because where were you living? I was living um, in a. I was living in. Uh, I was living in a, a bedroom from a guy from the local pub. Um, so I used to go to this pub in Yaxley called the Royal Oak, uh, and there was a guy, Mark Mark Carey. He was a fantastic guy, um, and I always used to have banter with him. And um, 
he let me live. He, his missus had left him with the three kids, so he's in this three-bedroom house on his own, and he really liked me for some reason. He was a really cool guy, and he let me live in there rent-free. So I was living in this bedroom in this guy's house. I like lived there for six months. I was making 80 quid a week on my apprenticeship. Um, second year, 35, 150 quid a week. So I didn't have a huge amount of money. Yeah. And uh, I had a moped till like I was like 17, so I had insurance and everything of that to cover in that money. And then by the time I was 17, I also got, you know, I was using that money to pay for my driving lessons and you know saved a bit up to get my first car 700 quid polo and um and so at the at the age of 18 i was like right qualified plumber now and then i saw this opportunity to become a gas engineer and i was like shit if i stick with this company they're going to give me no money but i could go and take out this loan because it was called a career development loan with barclays i could take out this loan but i got to move to rotherham and i got to live in um, a hotel in rotherham for the next 12 weeks with no income yeah, and um, the course was about five grand. And so there was about a grand left to last me that time. And um, I had a little bit of money in the bank, not a lot. Um, and, uh, what? So the course was five grand and they put you up in, in Rotherham too? For yeah, five no, grand. you had to pay for the hotel out of the five grand yeah, yeah, and yeah. the course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it worked out about five grand. I think the course is, I don't know, maybe three and a half and the hotel is about 1,500 or something, right? Um, and then the, the money that you could get from Barclay was six grand. So you had a bit extra to live on. So it was kind of like a mini, student loan university type thing but the, they guaranteed you a job in London at the end of it fitting gas meters for 38 grand a year so I'm like six grand a year don't get paid for 12 weeks it's going to be real shit because I've just come off the back of an apprentice wage but I reckon I can make it work yeah and um, if I don't do this now I'm going to get stuck working for these guys and they don't respect me and I can't really get a high paying job not as a plumber yeah. so I, I rang the boss back and I said you're going to give me the 60 quid a day and he said no I said alright fuck you I'm leaving put the phone down on him quit the job straight away because I thought he disrespected me massively, yeah, and um, went to Barclays, got the career development loan. Four days later, I was packing up my polo. I took a microwave um, and uh, some of the bits um, from uh, Mark's house that I was living at, and off I went to go and live in this hotel um, for, um, this was like 2008 or something like that, 2000. No, this was, yeah, about 2007, 2008. So just when the recession had started of 2008. Yeah, and like the recession came only like a few weeks later. It all was getting announced. So um, I'd gone on this course. I was staying in this this lodge. It was called like the Redwood Lodge or something like that. And it was costing, it was draining the money. And I was thinking, shit, I can't sustain this on this grand that I thought. I was eating Morrison's bread, which was 15 pence. And I was eating Morrison's super noodles, which was like 10 pence. So I was eating that for lunch and that for dinner every single day, right? And I'm staying down in this hotel and I'd just become qualified and everything else. It wasn't what I was expecting it to be. But um, went through the course and um, actually, a funny story, uh, I, um, found a, I found a lodge room and the woman wanted £5 a night. I'm like, this hotel's costing me 50 quid a night. If I could go there for five quid a night and it said breakfast included. Yeah. Are you sure she didn't want something else yeah, included? Yeah, I don't know what she wanted, but I think she just wanted company. <laughs> so I rocked up at this little old Rotherham terraced house, like an old coal miner's house, and I walked in there and it stunk of cats. There was like nine cats in there and this old woman came with long hair and glasses and um, she's looked a bit ropey uh, I've got a, ch- a chapter <laughs> on my book called The Crazy Cat Lady she was lovely and um, she showed me the room and it was fairly clean and I was like if I'm going to save 45 quid a day listen I've got no choice I'm running out of cash 
bastard and I can get any more money. Can't yeah. tap anyone up for money, right? So um, I thought, right, I'm going to go there. So I ended up living with this crazy cat lady for five quid a night. She cooked me a fry up every single morning and picking out the odd cat hair from the frigging um, eggs and bacon. And so I stayed there for the rest of the time. Um, at nine, and then at 19 years of age, I'd gone through this course and I became gas qualified. Unfortunately, recession hit. The guaranteed job they told me I was going to get them folded and disappeared. Didn't get the job at the end of the course. So I had to go and find a job and um, everywhere that you apply as a gas engineer wanted at that time a minimum of two years experience. I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to have to just go back and be a plumber. So at 19 years of age, very young for a gas engineer, I found this job um, advert in Coventry. So I drove down to Coventry and there was literally like 100 gas engineers applying for this job. And they were all in their like late 30s, early yeah, 40s. Yeah. So I sat there all day till 7.30 at night, right? And they came to me and I was the last one they interviewed. They looked to me and said, um, Joseph, really, really sorry, but that's the last interview of the day. I was like, look, you're crazy. I've been waiting here for like 14 hours. Please just see me give me 15 minutes and let me show you who I am yeah and the lady felt sorry for me she was like all right go on tell us who you are and I literally just hit him with everything that I'd done so passionate so um, um, fluent so excited about the opportunity and sold myself so well the next morning they contacted me and I got the job and so and then I got this job fitting gas meters in Coventry instead of London and I propelled my earnings to 40 grand straight away literally in like this period of time from you know like 18 so you, grand so, to 40 grand a year at 19 so you're at 19 years old you're on 40,000 yeah. pound a year you have you at this point have you bought your own van and bought your own stuff like that at this point I'm working for a company called OnStream fitting gas meters right. so I had their van brand new brand new Volkswagen Vivaro uh, 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 Vauxhall Vivaro um, I did at this point though have enough money now so I had my own flat in um, Yaxley got my own flat that was costing me like 600 a month had a nice girlfriend at the time so like kind of from 15 to 19 I'd really how, changed how, my how much was the girlfriend costing you <laughs> more than the 600 uh, she was costing me 39 grand a year <laughs> and the rest of the money I got on living uh, I spent on living yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and how many how, how long did you work for them before you, <clears throat> before you thought you know what I need to start my own business so two years went by, I hit 21 years of age and I was still doing kind of um, a similar role. Yeah, at this time I was servicing boilers, not doing gas meters. I was doing 12 boiler services a day for this company. I was earning 45 grand a year. I was doing well financially and I was making all the money, more money than you know, my parents ever had, than my teachers ever had. And, were, you know, were you happy? Um, no. I was happy on the journey. I wasn't happy on the destination. And here's why. Because I woke up and realized that I'd hit the pinnacle of what I could become as an employed gas engineer by 21. And I was looking at it and going, I'm going to service these boilers. There was no more progression for me, really, in the space. I was already making kind of top whack salary. 45 grand now is still top whack in the gas industry almost. It's a little bit more in some cases. Um, But I'd hit the pinnacle of what you could get as an employed engineer. I was miserable servicing these boilers. I like growth. I always like developing, becoming more. At that time, was money more important than happiness? Um... Not necessarily. Well, maybe um, the move that I made next will answer that question. So I looked at it and said, screw this. I'm going to Australia. 
Yeah, and so at the time I forgot you went to Australia. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah at yeah. the time, I was living with one of my best pals and his and one of his friends in this house, and we were having a house share, and you know it was good. I was working, I quite liked it, but he wanted to go Australia as well. Funnily enough, he still lives there. Eleven years on, he stayed there, um, and um, he wanted to go. I wanted to go, so we were like, "Listen, six. No, what did we say? Three months. We're gone." Yeah, because yeah. I was making a good income. I had a nice car. He had loads of savings because he was just that type of guy that literally saved everything. He was working. He was like 24 or 25, working in Coleman Stationery in town. So he was going nowhere and he hated his life, right? <laughs> um, and so, um, so uh, even though I had more prospects, I was still bored as shit in what I was doing. Been in Peterborough. I was 21. I'm like, man, there's, there's a whole planet out there. What am I doing here? I'm definitely not spending the rest of my life in this town. No disrespect to Peterborough. Um, I love Peterborough, but there's a big bright world out there. I am not staying here. Yeah, so I quit my job um, and um, told my boss I was going, you know, um, give him his four weeks notice and so on. Sold my MG's um, Z, ZR that I had at the time. Got about three or four grand and then off we went to Australia. You know, and so I, what year was this? Three, uh, 2011. Yeah, so you went to Australia three years before I landed. Yeah, 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 yeah. 2011. March 2011. What, what, what did you think about it when you landed in Australia? Okay. Because it's a bit of a culture shock, isn't it? Well, so um, me and Scott ended up um, booking different flights because he was getting impatient. So he booked his flight before me. I was like, why did you book the flight before me? And he was like, well, because I was worried that I was going to back out if I didn't. I was like, well, now I can't get on your plane, you idiot. We're meant to be going together. Yeah, and you didn't tell me about it. So I then booked a flight to piss him off two days before he was going. So I got there first, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, we stayed in a place called King's Cross in Sydney. Mate. Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> Mate. Mate, that is... Yeah. Like, for, 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 the Australia, <laughs> for the Australians listening to this podcast, which which probably about, I'd say about 65% of yeah. you are, right? You'll, you'll, you'll know King's Cross is a rough old place. Yeah. Run, back in the day that you went, it was completely run by bikies. It probably yeah. still is now. Um but the red get, light district. It, it was basically, basically he's just he's just uh, he's just turned up in the red light district of Sydney. <laughs> yeah. So we stayed in a hostel called Jackaroo, and it was actually a really nice hostel, Darlinghurst Road, going straight through Kings Cross. And so I got there. I couldn't believe it. Right, I got there on a, a Friday night at <laughs> could, ten o'clock. He couldn't believe it. He's like a hooker for one hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they were that cheap. No, um, they're not. They're not. <laughs> and um, and so uh, I got there. It was Friday night, ten o'clock, and King's Cross is dead now. I think they've locked it all down, and they there's a there's a uh, what do they call it? A curfew and stuff there. All the bars are gone and everything. But back then it was prime, like you say, run by gangsters and was just mental. Um, and um, so I got pulled up at this place and I was like surely this isn't it across the road was bada bing ping pong strip club after strip club you know it was just buzzing and I was like whoa this is crazy got out of my car and he was like your hostel's down them stairs mate and I was like what the fuck is this man like buzzing with the energy I got guys trying to pull me into strip clubs next to my hostel as I'm walking into the hostel with a suitcase dragging it along walked down the stairs and in this foyer there's literally like 50 people um, all dancing and partying shit face they got up to the reception thinking a hostel was like a hotel I'd never been to one yeah <laughs> and so you know I walked up to the guy and it was some Welsh dude that was sat there in um, 
flip-flops, shorts, and in his, in his thongs, thongs and his flip-flops, yeah. uh, and his, his thongs, his shorts, and his vest. And I was like, hey, buddy, um, I've come to um, uh, stay here. I've got a booking. He looked at me and goes, hey, do you want a glass of wine? And um, in that hostel on Friday nights, they did free wine Friday. So I was like, fuck it, why not? Go on, give it here. So down the wine. <laughs> and then I was like, can I have my keys? And he was like, yeah, mate, you're on floor four or whatever. Here's the keys. And in the hostels, as people that have stayed in them will know, um, the, you know, there's bunk beds in there and so you're not got your own private room so, so you I'm thought li- you were going to your own private room no 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 I knew that it was a shared room but I'd never been in that experience before yeah. I, wasn't, no, I thought he was going to walk me up take so, my bag up there and, so, you know. so, so <laughs> I stayed I've stayed in the hostel about three times and it's like it's weird because like you, you're in the bed and then there's someone shagging in the bed next to you yeah. and you're like just do, mate. Like, I'm just trying to fucking, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just trying to crack on it. it, it yeah. You know what I'm like, it, 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 and they put a privacy sheet up. The hostel, like, <laughs> tuck the towel over yeah, in between yeah, yeah. underneath the mattress. Uh, 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 <laughs> and the, yeah, then, then you've got some old mate, you're just giving it some. I'm like, fucking hell, bro. It's like, but a traveller's lifestyle, that's what it was, weren't it? Well, partying and, and partying and shagging and having fun was what it was all about. But so I went up there and there was three people asleep. And I had to climb up on this bunk bed, got on top and was kind of just like, laying there like what do I do now jet lag I wasn't tired it was Friday night at 12 so I got back up went downstairs and just went and started drinking with whoever was down there um, and how long did you how long did you last in Australia okay about six months did yeah you, what, what were the key skills that Australia taught you about life well, I mean, two days into Australia remember I, t- I sold my car and I took them three and a half grand yeah, yeah? that's all I had yeah, to last me. So got I, there. I, I landed. I landed. <laughs> I landed with six thousand dollars. So I would say that was three thousand pounds. Yeah. yeah. So about that money. Anyway, right. I've been in Australia for like three days, and as you know, Sydney is King's Cross is in Sydney, and it's not too far from like the main areas and all the nightclubs. But you know, when you translate the English money to Australian money a double vodka rebel was something like $40 in the top nightclubs in Sydney. And I'm used to drinking a bottle of vodka in Peterborough or, you know, in town in Peterborough for however much that was. And within three days, I'd spent all of the money that I'd taken. Literally in three days, I partied for three days straight <laughs> and spent everything, every last penny. And luckily, I'd paid the hostel four weeks in advance. So I'd run out of money completely. Yeah, but I'd um, paid the hostel. Yeah. So I had the accommodation. So I was like, shit, what am I going to do? My best pal arrives over and he's not really a big drinker. He's not wild like I was back then. Um, and so, you know, he had loads of money. And I'm like, can you lend me some money for food? So I managed to get a few hundred dollars out of him and he's the tightest bastard going. So it was a big, it was a tough gig to get it out of him. And then um, loads of the guys that had become friends with in the hostel, about 10 of them were all going to work in this call centre. And they were Because high- that, that's the thing what people don't understand yeah. is you've just qualified as a gas engineer yeah. and there's no such thing as a, like the gas engineers yeah. over there aren't, aren't, it's not even a job because there's no central heating, right? Exactly right. I think they've got gas for cooking and stuff, but I didn't want to go there to be a tradie. I'd got away from being a tradie. I wanted to go there and travel really and have fun. That's what my game was, you know. I didn't really want to work, but like an idiot, I'd spent all my money, right? So... Um, I um, found this call centre and they were selling solar power and I've always been a good salesman so I was like right rocked up to this solar this place they were paying $22 an hour and you had to do a 12 hour shift $220 a day yeah six plus days comms, plus six comms. days a week plus comms and making $1500 a week I'm like this is crazy money versus what 
You would have got in England for that type of job. Going to the call centre, within a day, I was top salesperson. Within two days, I was top salesperson in there, banging out loads of comms, booking the most appointments for the solar sales reps. I was killing it. And so well, I just literally spent the next three months living in Sydney, working, going out every single night, partying every night, going to work, extremely hungover. But I'd made this, I made this click of like 10 guys. They were from England, Wales, Scotland. Some were from, one was from Spain, one was from Italy. And so we'd kind of built this little family of like going out in King's Cross all night and then going to work together. It was such a um, such a great time. And um, we were just like, yeah, it was such a great little community. And one of the guys said, look, we're going traveling up the East Coast in three months. Um, we're doing all of these things, Fraser Island, uh, a Castaway Tour, um, you know, uh, going to Cairns. We did skydiving, um, did Byron Bay, Nimbin, all of those areas, right? So we did this whole tour, Gold Coast. We did this whole town of 1770, like all the tourist sites, right? And so he put together this itinerary for a month of all of these amazing um, tourist destinations across the East Coast. And so on the last day, we all quit our jobs on the same time in this call center and 10 of us that had this tight bond traveled on greyhound buses like every 48 hours to a new destination and did like however many thousands of miles it is up the east coast in like a month just going from town to town i built up enough cash to sustain that journey um in that period of time and it was the best time of my life 21 carefree you know for a person that's got adhd and always wants something exciting to happen in their life or they feel like they're going nowhere it was like the best buzz like for me and it was just an amazing, amazing time. Um, and at the end of the trip, I'd, I'd scheduled enough cash to fly to Margaret River on the west to go and do my farm work, right? Yeah, so I could yeah, stay yeah. for the so, second so you, year. So you were fully planning on doing farm work? Yeah, I was fully planning on because I wanted to stay, right? I loved it there. But I'd got to the end and I was like, literally, we were drinking so heavily. Um, you know, we were drinking goon every night. Uh, the, bo- <laughs> the box wine. <laughs> yeah, we had yeah, no yeah. money. For everybody that's listening from England, obviously the Australians are going to know, goon is that wine that you get in a box with a little tap on it and you could get four liters of it for ten dollars if you wanted to buy spirits it was like you know sixty seventy dollars for a standard liter bottle of vodka or jack daniels or whatever so i didn't have the money to um spend on that so we just bought the wine and we we're drinking that every night i was eating like one mcdonald's burger a day towards the end just to ration my money it got extremely tight so i was getting a bit sick of it anyway if i was honest but then um they had like bad storms and um and uh, the uh, work got pushed back by like, I don't know, eight weeks. Yeah. And I didn't have any money to sustain it, but I had a ticket that I could call on. So I managed to get my ticket home and my journey got cut short. because so I couldn't borrow any money from home to sustain the eight weeks. A few of them had, but I'd run out of cash. So I literally flew home like, I don't know, something like, two days after a day after I'd run out of my last bit of money so I had the meals on the planes got back to the UK and I literally planned it just down to the absolute um the absolute last minute it was crazy and then and then when you when you got back here did you did you just go back staying in your mate's house no well when I got back I was um uh I'd come back I went back to my mum's house for literally like a week and I was like screw this I called my old boss um because I worked for a company locally at that point and I was like look I'm back and I'm a job back he's like of course because I was really good at my job um so he let me straight back into the business but like literally in two days um uh, the depression kicked in I was like man I'm back here what am I doing like in your experience from what you remember yeah where, where do you think the better opportunity is Australia or the UK um 
I'd say opportunity for me is wherever you create it. I love that. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think it kind of, it doesn't really matter. I don't care where I am because um, I can make something from nothing. Um, Australia's got its benefits. England's got its benefits. I just wasn't mature enough already at 21 to stay there by myself. I did miss home. I missed my old friends. Um, you know, I wanted to, I'd come to this point, right? Because I was always wanting to start my own business. That was the whole point of me being a tradesperson from 15. I was like, I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to build my own business. I never wanted to work for anybody. It was never my vibe. It was get qualified, get the experience and move on. And, you know, towards the end of my trip, I was like, man, I'm just wasting my life here. I'm just traveling here from town to town, getting drunk. I'm like, I'm ready to go back now and smash it. I've, I've got all of that out of me. I went on to the other side of the world. I did it. If I die tomorrow, I, I, I didn't just stay in the town that I grew up in. I, yeah. I went for it, yeah? Yeah, yeah? I tried to see what else was out there, right? I, I had a bigger vision for myself. So I was happy that I'd done that. So when I came back, I knew that getting back in my existing job was literally just a means to an end, yeah? And so I knew that my wages would be turned on straight away. So within like a couple of weeks, I got a brand new house, um, rented a house, was in a house was all good to go it's, um, it's, it's great that you've said that and what I want what I want everyone who's listening to really dial into to listening to is the fact of like what Joe said there is so true because you can leave a country because mm-hmm. I get these inboxes I don't know if you get them in your DMs all the time but when I'm in Australia I'll get English people reach out to me and go oh mate I want to come to Australia or when I'm in England I'll get Australians and say oh man I really want to come to England yep. and they make out this big thing like they've got to go for a year and they've got to save up and they've got to do this and they've got, they got they make a big process Yeah, I'm saying and I'm sure you'd agree with me shorten that process like literally like book a flight I yep. tell people book a flight and just do whatever you can do in the meantime between then and your flight. And book a flight in like a month's time. Definitely. And just make it work. Yep. You will have the best time of your life. You will have the most growth in your life if you take that opportunity and throw yourself into it. Yep. so many people, man, make things so difficult. Yeah. I know because they put it on a pedestal. They, they put all of these barriers in their mind as to why it can't be done. Yeah, and how many people do that with everything? Um, and so, you know, commit first, figure the rest out later is what you need to yeah, do. You know? I, I th- I th- Literally. And from from both, what we've both done, even though it's been different and similar areas, similar similar type of thing, but we've both done different things, but we've not really overthought it. Yeah. And I think that's where the, the growths come because we haven't overthought it. We haven't handicapped ourselves with, oh, God, but... But I need six months or twelve months worth of money for this. Yeah. I need this and this and this. It's like I'm I'm shortly going to go to America. I have no fucking idea where to land, where to fly to, what to do. I'm just going to fucking fly there. Yeah. And it's like, haven't you booked any guests now? I haven't. I'm just yeah. going to rock up some to Miami and I'll just I'll just ring Andre Berto, who's been on the podcast, and be like, Andre, you fancy doing some boxing? Yeah, cool, cool. And then I'll just figure it out. Yeah. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna just, I'm not just gonna I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I'm mm. gonna figure it out. And that that's it. That's that's the that's what I've got from your whole narrative. Is the fact of like you've just figured it out, yeah. And it's just, and there's a there's a, a saying in the, in the Toyota factory, and it's they they run they run a method when they're building cars. It's called just in time, yeah. So they so they only have the that part or that type of thing in the factory when they're ready to put it on the car. That way they save storage fees. Mm-hmm. People are storing too much in their mind that they don't fucking need yeah and you should operate a just-in-time method on your own life yeah yeah yeah. i think there's a lot of growth there like it 
But you, you, you go through that. You get, you, you start working this company. Then you get your own van and you start to build Impragas, right? Well, my mum, um, like I came back in something like July of 2011, and um, I was working with this company for a few months. December 2011 comes around, and I'm like, I want to do something. I'm sick of this. But I didn't know how to start my business, right? And so, again, I had a defining moment. So, my mum gets me Lord Sugar's autobiography for Christmas. Yeah, what you see is what you get. Now, I always told my friends, and if you'd met my friends from, um, you know, back in um, those years, I would always say, I'm going to go on The Apprentice. Even people in Australia, I was saying it to, I'm going to go on and win The Apprentice one day. And it's funny, they tapped me up and reminded me of these things, right? Um, And so... Uh, and my mum got me this book and I haven't read a book since like year five I wasn't interested in reading or whatever it's not what wasn't on my agenda yeah and so um but I love Lord Sugar I admired him and I love The Apprentice so in that period for two weeks that company I worked for would shut down over Christmas so I had this two weeks and I started reading the book and within like page two I was addicted to it and so over two weeks and the book's about that thick it's got you know crazy crazy amount of words in it I read this book from cover to cover I was staying up till five six in the morning just reading yeah I just couldn't get enough of it every page my DNA was changing because I saw that Lord Trigger had come from nothing and built billionaire wealth because he he built his business originally out the back of a car selling computers yeah and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So. Selling car aerials, and then it kind of evolved, and then he got into TVs, and then he did hi-fis, and then he hit the personal computer market. So, you know, he became a um, billionaire. You know, in, a, in a 1980, Amstrad was worth over something like over a billion dollars, which now will be like 20, 30 billion. Like, he was I think, a I think big, he's, big I think he still, I think he still does The Apprentice in Australia. Yeah, he does, yeah. This yeah, yeah. is a celebrity one, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think is that quite, that's quite new, isn't it? I think he's on his second I th- series I th- I think, on it I think, I think like I saw that. an other day, yeah, like um, it, there was a celebrity one that he'd done over there re- quite yeah. recently. That, he's that, doing another yeah. one as well, I think. It's on at the moment. Um, but um, um, so I read this book and I was like, wow. Like, this guy's come from nothing. I've come from nothing. Because even up until that point, I was still an employed mentality. I wanted to do something, but I still didn't believe that I could do what... I, I, I still wasn't open up and I wasn't opened yet to see that I could become. Because, you know, I thought the gods of the business world like that were given opportunities that I had never got. So I still had a little bit of that mindset where, hang on, you know, these guys... Because, you know, when you try to make sense of somebody else, else's success when you can't get there you try to find ways to make it like well they had a leg up or you know they were given something yeah, you kind you, of justify you, it in you, your mind you, right? you, you use what they term as a confirmate confirmation bias and what confirmation bias does is it confirms whatever you think is true in yeah. your narrative so i can say oh you know you you know, Joe had a better opportunity than me and hence why he's done this and he's done that. And That's I can't do that because I didn't have that leg up. Yeah. So I'll put my confirmation bias. Now, your confirmation bias is instilled in you when you're a child. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say to people, the reason why the tagline to this podcast is break patterns, flip perspectives is because your whole life as a child, you are programmed either by by um, low socioeconomic parents, middle class parents or, 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 or wealthy 
parents on on how to operate mm-hmm. and your operating system unless you've been brought into that in up in the wealthier echelon of society which teaches their kids about money and about how business works and all this stuff your programming is going to be fucked mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like especially if you're brought up in in what what would be peter's majority middle class area so you are taught and programmed from a young age that when you leave school you've got two options you go into university or you're going to get an apprenticeship mm-hmm. and then you're going to earn your 35 40 grand a year you're going to get your bmw on the drive you're going to have your three bedroom house in, in a suburb of peterborough and you're going to have a, a 2.4 children and you're gonna and your and your aspiration is to have a david lloyd membership yeah that is what you're taught here right yeah well i'm telling you if you want more for yourself you've got to break that pattern and that yep. programming and the confirmation biases that you have in your life are what what keep you in the programming mm-hmm, so you've mm-hmm. got to break the matrix and the only way to break the matrix like joe says is to like break that programming is to, is to flip that perspective to see things different you can't ever catch yourself saying they had this and mm-hmm, that's why mm-hmm. i can't have that exactly and it's you know confirmation bias it's 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 the same it kind of reminds me of the um uh you know the 15 year old version of me making excuses you know you're confirming why um they have got there but you can't get there because they had this so it's kind of excuse making really isn't it um when you strip it down as to it's an excuse that they had that so it's stopping me from doing this so anyway i saw sugar didn't have anything he didn't have a leg up so i wasn't even coming at it from a jealous place where I thought that people as billionaires would have got given opportunities. It was just more that I thought they were and I saw he hadn't. So I was like, hang on, if he can do it, I could do it, right? So rather than go back to work in January, I quit my job again, right? I did. I had no business plan. I didn't have a business name. I was like, screw this. I'm quitting my job in January. I'm starting my business. I'm going for it. So that, that, that's something else I want to drive into. This, yeah. this, this business name bollocks where people go out and do the logo and the business name and they're worrying about the business name, the logo, the Instagram account and all this crap how's about you get your first customer yeah exactly because, because, right because your first customer proves whether you have a business or not yeah then get the second then get the third yep. generate revenue don't yep. don't try and make I, a sale and then go and do all of that fancy stuff yeah um you don't even need to register a business because until you don't have a business until you've made a sale yeah so you don't need to need to fucking register it even to start you just start and then you fucking figure it out exactly so i um decided to quit my job so i went online before i did tesco's um took out a fifteen thousand pound loan like when when i've got an obsession and a bee in my bonnet i'm doing it then and there like what, no one's talking me out of it so what was your method is, is this just you just thought right i need a van i need tools i'm going to take out the loan to buy the van and the tools. yeah i mean in in construction it's fairly straightforward isn't it you know it's not a you what's the business plan well, I need a van, I need some tools, I need to go and find some customers. I can do the job, so it's not much more complicated than that, right? I'm exchanging my skill for time, my services for time, uh, my my um, skills and time for money. So it's quite straightforward. It was just, you know, all of the other stuff that comes with scaling up, which we can go on to, but... I knew I needed some cash. I didn't know how much. I thought 15 grand, took out this loan, got a home development loan. People say, how did you fund your original business? Well, I used the good wages that I had to pretend I wanted a home development loan, took that money um, from Tesco Bank personal loan and used it to fund my business. And then I quit my job. Um, Sorry, Tesco, but that's how it was. Um, And then I had this 15 grand in the bank. So I bought a 1,500 quid van. I bought 500 pounds worth of tools. I did actually get a website straight away, even though I probably didn't read one at that point, I did get one because I just wanted one, um, 700 quid. And then I bought a suit fairly similar to this, the pinstripe suit, my first 
ever suit. I bought a pinstripe suit. I bought a suitcase. Um, I bought a shirt, a tie, and I bought one of those um, umbrellas with the curved bent wooden handles on it, right? Yeah. Um, banker umbrella. And I'll tell you why I did that in a moment. So I did that, quit my job, um, took out the loan, had my van, and now I was like, right, okay. Like many people do, this is the fundamental mistake that so many people make as they start businesses. They'll start a gym or they'll start a restaurant or they'll start a uh, hairdresser's or they'll start a plumbing business or an electrical business and then they expect customers to come to them they don't they don't appreciate what they've got to do to bring people in they have no marketing strategy no sales strategy no customer acquisition strategy so they're not bringing anybody into the business and so i didn't have any of that stuff because i didn't even know what it was i thought start a van get some business cards give a few people out that's what every other tradesperson does right they get a few business cards and then jobs must come Conf- right. that's confirmation bias again because yeah. you, you confirmed yourself because everyone else is doing it that way that I've got to do it that way yeah <clears throat> and who not to take advice from is other sole traders that are doing a same style business that isn't really the right way to do business people take advice from the wrong people right and mine never had ambitions to become a one-man band or a sole trader that wasn't my ambition i wanted to become a national business national was always on my mind you know one thing um start um, begin with the end in mind i knew that i was going to build a national company from day one i used to sit there in the dark visioning it after reading lord sugar's book saying to myself i'm going to build a national empire so you believe in the law of attraction 100 I live my life by. I won the apprentice because of the law of attraction. Hands down, no other reason. I fucking visioned every single second before it came real. I sat there the whole time I applied till the time that I got on the show was five months from when I applied, right? I literally visioned every single night. You're hired, you're hired, you're hired, you're hired, you're hired. Joseph, you're hired, you're hired, you're hired. I repeated that scenario in my mind a thousand times before I went to sleep. I recorded myself every day saying... Um, uh, with um, saying to Lord Sugar my speech, um, Lord Sugar, I'm the godfather of business. You're never going to pick anybody like, like anybody else like me. All of these candidates in this room, they're already fired because I visioned um, you, Lord Sugar, say, Joe, you're hired. You don't need anybody else because I'm here now. I'm your winner. Right? Record, I've got all of these old videos on my phone to back all this stuff up. I've actually got a little reel that I can share that we made into a Law of Attraction video to show that um, through like all these months as I changed my hair and my facial hair and everything else that I was repeating the same thing and then it came real yeah and I started my business because of his book I was so passionate about him I used to tweet him every other day can't wait for our meeting and and they even picked it up post winning saying you were tweeting Lord Sugar in 2013 saying thanks for the meeting was there some like hidden were you already picked many many years before no and it was just me being a young guy just like tweeting him saying I'm I'm, you know like pretending that I'd won I'd put myself in this scenario so I envisioned it it came true I won that because of law of attraction everything is because of law of attraction everything I've ever achieved um, I saw way before it happened everything and now I practice those laws before every time I say I'm going to go and do something I will take it through the same process what, yeah? what, what is the process vision it speak it see it believe it uh, and and, the, and, I, the, and I will take that through 12 times every the, day and the piece that most people miss is feeling it feeling, feeling it feeling because obviously I've I've read many books on law yep. of attraction, Bob Proctor's, yep. Tony Robbins, all that stuff, and uh, you know Joe Dispenza in terms yep. of what he talks about and the quantum field. I'm going to a Joe Dispenza retreat, yep. meditation to get into that, to get into that thing. 
Because you said that, is the book that you read, The Feeling is the Secret? Because the, the fact that you said, because I speak to loads of people about law of attraction, but you are 100%, it's the feeling. It's, and not a lot of people know that. They think it's the vision. No, 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 but no. But it's no. the feeling that underpins I, the vision. I, I've been visioning how my life's going to be for fucking, ever since I was a kid, man. Yeah. Right? Ever since I was a kid, I've been visioning about this podcast. I've been visioning about all this shit that I've wanted to do in my life. I've visioned that all my life. The the fundamental fucking bit that I always never understood until the last 12 months yeah. was the necessity of feeling like you already fucking have it yeah. and it's in your possession. And that feeling is the separator between it coming into your life or not. Mm-hmm. It's the feeling of already having. And it's why, I'm, I know it sounds stupid to a lot of people, but I made a vision board. Yeah, And on this vision board... I, at the time, I didn't, I, I tell this story to, because it's so fucking powerful, it's like I had this woman on this vision board, mm-hmm. and this woman I'd never met before, I didn't know her, she was an Australian, rah, rah, rah. and I, I I put her on this vision board, and then all of a sudden she 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 starts training at the gym and then and then and then I start, I start to meet her and then I become friends with her and then and then and then, and then we we have kind of a relation type thing mm-hmm. and I'm like fuck this I wrote down on on that vision board exactly what was happening, bro. Yeah, and it's like, fuck if you can do that with that. And I had other things. On this vision, <laughs> I had other things on this vision board that that I that that I wanted as well. But at the time, I I wasn't feeling into those mm. as much. But yeah, I was feeling into this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what came because I felt into it. And yeah, fe- the feeling is the fundamental key shift. Mm that brings everything into your life. Yep. There's a book by Neville Goddard called The Feeling is a Secret. That's really good. Neville so Goddard is yeah. a wizard, mate. Check it out. Absolute yeah. wizard mm. of, he is a goat. He yeah. is a goat. If you get any opportunity to read a Joe Dispenza book, a Neville Goddard book, you know, some of that early Tony Robbins stuff is fucking brilliant. Other stuff like that. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's, just, a key, it's just a key one. I'm regretting that. wearing this suit now. You, you, you sweating like crazy. It's getting hot, isn't it? Yeah, mate. Um, <laughs> mate. It's roasting, but now I've gone all this way, I'm going to carry on wearing it. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, so yeah. Law of attraction, hundred percent. I saw everything before it happened. Um, when I knew, everybody always says to me, um, you know, uh, actually, I just go back a stage before I go to that point. So, started this business. Yeah, I knew that I needed to go and find some customers. I was in business for a week. Um, nobody was ringing me. Yeah. Obviously, I've not put any advertising out. No one's going to start ringing me. And I was like, hang on, this ain't as good as what I thought it was going to be. I thought everyone was just going to come. I've got a van. It's got a number on the side of it. Why is my phone not ringing off the hook, right? Um, but I also, years ago, had watched a Charlie Mullins documentary where he... Fucking Pimlico plumbers, mate. They're fucking brilliant. Pimlico plumbers. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. Um, you know, I watched a Charlie Mullins documentary where he said that the reason his business got ahead was because he changed the perception of way the, in- the way the industry is. And it really resonated with me that if you want to get ahead in life, you've got to do what the competition won't do. So I said, right, I need to find some work here and I've got no marketing money. I haven't got money to spend on acquiring Mrs. Jones down the road who wants a boiler. But what I can do is hit property management companies. If I win one comp company, you've then got- they're going to have access yeah. to all of this stuff. But I thought, if I just go 
in there dressed as a plumber and park my van outside, they're just going to see me as another plumber. Yeah, and I remember Charlie Mullins being in a tie, being in a suit, saying how good his guy was. And I was like, because I recently interviewed Charlie Mullins on my podcast and um, on a Trade Mastermind podcast. And he said to me, uh, and I told him about that story. And he recently sold for 145 million as well his business. What, Mullins, yeah. Mullins has sold Pimlico? Yeah, he sold it. Yeah, I'll, have to to get, it. I'll have to get him on this podcast to yeah, talk about I'll it. Give, he, I'll he, give you his number if you want. Um, and um, yeah, he sold it for 145 million, right? And uh, yeah. So just to put it into context, Pimlico Plumbers, for a lot of you, any Australian audience uh, listening, is um, a plumber's uh, obviously based in Pimlico in London. He's he. Charlie grew it from like zero to obviously he just exited for 140 million. Yeah. He was well known for having big hair, big personality, London boy. Yeah. Like, you know, a bit of a tan on him. Yeah. Like suited and booted. And he just, he just, Changed that, the game. He just changed the plumbing game in yeah. London. Completely changed it. And, you know, perception and first impressions was a big part of that. So I bought this pinstripe suit, never owned a suit. And um, I put it on, got a tie on, got my shirt on, got my shoes on, got my briefcase, didn't have anything in it, got my umbrella. Yeah, and then I hit Peterborough High Street, Cowgate, right? I went to um, City County, William H. Brown, Sharman Quinney's. I went to all of them down the high street. And I was literally just walking in there with slick back hair um, in a pinstripe suit with a briefcase and an umbrella looking like I do now as a frigging trader or whatever, you know, banker in London. And um, and I'm just like pitching. Hi, it's Joseph from Impragas. Um, can I speak to somebody about uh, my services? We offer a 24-hour call-out service, breakdown, repair, installation, you name it, we'll be able to do you, it for you, you. And at this point, you're just throwing shit at the wall to see what's sticks. Literally, I, I was just hitting every agent. Like, you know, and how many people are afraid to go out there and pitch their business? They're so scared. But I had no money and um, I needed to do it. I mean, it was... It was I've got to go and make some activity. I've got to create something to start to mould into something, right? I've got to create some energy. Results go where energy flows. So whenever I'm not seeing results in anything in my life, I chuck myself into it. Start making calls, doing posts, um, you know, hiring people, going and meeting people, whatever I've got to do, I've got to create some energy to see where I can start to tr- test and gauge results, right? Um, you know, the biggest the biggest thing that s- steals you from making deals, the biggest thing is, yep. is the fact that people don't ask for this ask for the deal yeah people are too afraid to ask for the deal before yep. we before we started this podcast i've voice noted my mate i've created this thing i'm not going to talk about it what i've created on the back of the podcast i've, I've created this i've created this 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 business that i'm doing it's yep. it's not nothing related to the podcast but i've created this business idea right and i've i've proofed it and i've done it and i've got a few testimonies for it i've voice noted my mate um, who lives in Dubai? I've voice noted him and said, "Mate, I'm doing this. I'm doing this thing. Yep. I need a testimonial for it. It's not. It's normally forty k. I'll do it for you for thirty k. Boom, 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 boom. And, I, and I've and I've pitched him. I already pre pre rang him last night. I pitched him. Yeah. All I'm doing there before this podcast is I'm asking my mate who already know likes and trust me for a fucking deal. Yeah. And I'm going to deliver him money. So so I might get off this podcast and I might have a $35,000 deal yep. that I didn't have this morning just because I voice noted me mate going, hey mate, I've got this thing that I've created over yep. here. It does this, this and this and this. Yep. And it's going to provide you this much value. And I'm just asking him for the fucking money. Mm. How many people out there, Joe, are not asking people for the money? I would say that probably 98% of business owners are afraid to sell. Um, especially in construction. They're afraid to sell. They have a good idea. They might have a good product, but they can't sell. 
Sell it. Sales is a skill um, that um, you can learn and you can teach, but one that you must master as a business owner. These business owners that you know, you feel like the likes of Bill Gates and Elon Musk. You know, people call those guys introverts, not extroverts, and to a level that they are. But they are ruthless PR branding sales machines. Yeah, and you've got to be be able to sell the product. Um, and um, if you can't sell your own product, then as a business owner, you're screwed. You've got to be able to make sales. But sales is um, difficult for so many people because they either don't believe in themselves, they don't believe in the product, they're not passionate about it, or they find it extremely awkward because they hate rejection. Here's, is one, what it here's, boils one, down here's one for you then. Yeah. Because me and you can both agree that you weren't passionate about fitting boilers, about plumbing in taps and all this shit, right? Completely. So what were you passionate about in order to be able to sell it? Because a lot of tradesmen are going to listen to this, or a lot of people in the trade that are, that are perhaps in, in a job now, yep. they're going to listen yep. to this, and they're, they're probably going to be inspired. Think, I'll go get a van, mm. I'll go and get a loan, I'll go do this, right? Yeah. You and I both know that they've both got to sell it. Yeah. But some of them aren't fucking passionate about it, you can't yep. expect them to be. How did you get that passion to be able to go and sell that? Well, first and foremost, the passion came from wanting to change the game. So I wasn't so, I was always really bothered about quality of service. And that's what I built my reputation on. I was obsessed. Yeah, that word keeps coming back. I was obsessed with the quality of what I would do and the service I'd provide. But I went into um, the plumbing game to change the game, to be an innovator, to do what had never been done before. Right? I saw it as an industry that hadn't changed for the last 50 years. And a young guy like me with the balls that I've got and the ambition that I've got and the skills that I have and the knowledge around the industry because I've been in it since I was 15, I could come in and mix something up. I was like the sugar of the electronics world. I just did it in the plumbing world, right? And so my passion was innovation. So, you know, many, and and early on, I was really passionate about the job and everything else until, you know, doing the work becomes only a part of the business. You then have to become Mm. a businessman, a commercially minded businessman to take it to the next level. And, you know, all those years on, when I was selling thousands and thousands and millions and millions of pounds worth of boilers, I wasn't passionate necessarily about the boiler. I was passionate about building the business. And it could have been any product at that point that I was selling, but it was the building of this company to the national level. Yeah, bearing in mind, I was obsessed with building to my dream of becoming a national company. And from 22, okay, when I started, I actually did it by 29. I became the largest independent boiler installation company in the UK. We won national installer of the year, and I hit my goal. I hit my dream. I was able. So, how to many achieve- boilers were you were you installing at that point? Six thousand, which is about ten million in revenue a year. So you're at ten million revenue. Yeah, a year. by the time I was 29. Yeah, so I'd become the CEO. I had 100 people. We operated in every major city in the UK. But before I talk too much about that, I just want to come back to the point where, um, because that sales bit, I really like what we were talking about. So I hit all of the estate agents. Every single one of them would look to me like I was come from another planet, by the way. Yeah, I'm wearing a pinstripe suit, pitching gas service certificates and maintenance work. They They couldn't connect the two, but I made an impact. They remembered me. I saw in their eyes that this guy's, just walked in and they remembered who I was and I, and I took that lesson into everything I've ever done right that I'm going to make a big first impression yeah because then they won't forget who I am so another week went by I got no work no work I got a couple of jobs on Facebook and I was like shit what am I going to do so I did what most people wouldn't and I went back 
Yeah, didn't know. I didn't want to spend the money on buying another suit, so I nicked a tie off my stepdad. Yeah, put on a different shirt. Um, didn't take the umbrella this time. Took the briefcase and I went back. And out of the fifty estate agents that I went and saw, forty-eight of them said, "Listen, mate, we've told you that we'll contact you. Please don't come back again." But out of that day, two of them said, "Bloody hell, we thought you would. We didn't know who you were. We didn't. We we just like thought you weren't the real deal. Thank God you've come back. We are desperate for a gas engineer." Des- when can you start? I said, I can start now if you like. Yeah. And they were like, what, really? And I was like, yeah, start now. They were like, right, we're going to send you 30 works orders today. 30 jobs. And then before I went home, I visited the last one on the run. Yeah, this was one down Lincoln Road. Yeah. Um, Peterborough Lettings, it was, or something, right? Went and saw those guys. Um, uh, a state agent run by um, these Asian guys, really great guys. And they went back in there and they said the same. Listen, we were like, who is this guy coming off the street dressed like this? Um, we had no impression we thought you were messing around um you know we, we just weren't sure but now you've come back we know you a bit more we probably trust you a bit more and we actually like your audacity to get back here so yes we need your help so I literally went straight home and I had 50 jobs in my inbox, 50 jobs the next day, 50 jobs. Within a week, I'd hired my first apprentice. Within a month, I'd hired my first plumber. Within three months, I had my first office. Within six months, I had three plumbers. Within a year, I had my first um, full-time um, office administration person. Within two years, I was the largest maintenance company in and around the region working for the property management companies. And within three years, I'd hit 25 years of age. I was doing half a million a year. Yeah. And, and at that point, you said to yourself, what is the most profitable part of this business? And is that when you went into boilers? No. The, that came after winning The Apprentice. So at this point, I'd hit 25, yeah? And as a business owner running a plumbing business, and my business now trains construction businesses how to grow because I was a plumber running a plumbing business. Hairdressers run hairdressing businesses. Lawyers run lawyer practices. Accountants run accountancy offices. Dentists run dentistry. These people aren't business people, right? Just because you're good at the job, it doesn't mean you have a scooby-doo about running a business. And people make that mistake. They think that because they're a fantastic gas engineer, they're a fantastic businessman. Running a business is a completely different set of skills i always say to people and especially in a trade because it's a good analogy for anyone listening but this is for any profession right you went to college to become a gas engineer for three years how much training did you do before you bought your van and start incorporated your company none so you to become a master gas engineer you need three years minimum qualification training but you can register a company and start doing finances and selling jobs and all this stuff and you haven't even had any training you don't know about systems processes margin sales marketing recruitment in england you can set up a company for 13 pound yeah it's 13 pounds to set up a company that's 26 dollars to have a limited company in england and I'd never say don't do it because I think everyone should do it, but don't go into it underprepared because unless you can sustain and you are very resourceful, it can be suicide. It, running a business is fucking hard, right? And if you ain't got what it takes, it's suicide. People put their life savings up, they quit jobs, they put their mortgages on the line, they do all this stuff for this vision that they never should have really gone for. But in my opinion... I started my first limited company with yep. zero with zero money. Yeah. And I think everyone who starts a limited company yep. should start with zero money. Yeah. You should never start I know I your first business, you need to learn the game first. Yep. You need to learn everything and you're gonna fuck up. So I wouldn't start with a shitload of capital. No. Because I think that's where 
certain people who've been brought up around money go fucking wrong. Yeah. They've had so much money and it's been so abundant that they start this business with money mm. and, you know, th- their dad that earned the money that got them to the level they're at hasn't passed on the fundamental skills and, yeah. the, and the tenacity yeah. to, to, to go mm. and get that. They don't get. appreciate the they don't appreciate the value of what they're investing in or what they are investing. It's, it's very easy mm. to, to, to think, ah, oh, because you've, because you've seen hundreds of thousands of pounds, you don't appreciate a tenner or a thousand pounds yep. or a hundred pounds or a fifty pound note. Yep. You don't appreciate it because yep. you've been around so much cash. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Or do you know what I'm saying? Or if you get, if guess what's going to happen? If you set up a limited company and you've saved yourself fifty thousand pounds and you go out there with fifty thousand pounds and you treat yourself like you've got fifty thousand pounds in your business, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're going to fucking spend it if you've, yep. if you've never been in business before. Yep. And you're going to spend it on dumb shit like business cards. Mm, mm, like, mm. You, and that's where it's going to be. Yep. You're going to erode yourself. Um, yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think the point that I'm trying to make is don't not start. And whether you start with money or not, prepare yourself before you start. You know, get a business coach, do some business training. Learning on the job is great for your ego. Learning on the job in reality can be suicide. Yeah. And so if you can prepare your pitch, you know, you don't go into a sales presentation and try and sell it off before you prepare, you practice your pitch. So prepare yourself as much as possible with as much knowledge. Yeah. To safeguard, of course, running your first business, you're going into the unknown, you know, staring into the abyss Elon Musk says, or, you know, like eating glass or driving in the dark without any um, headlights on. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what you don't know, and which is kind of great and part of the experience. But the more that you can do to remove the points that will take you down or make you go bust or, you know, make you fail, you know, there's mini failure and there's catastrophic failure. Um, and you're avoiding them catastrophic failures is what I'm talking about. Mini failure is part of the journey. Um, but there are some really fundamental fuck-ups um, that can, you know, destroy everything that you've built. And, you know, I'll talk about um, some of the things that have screwed me over over the time or that I've fucked up on in a little while. Um, well, you, 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 you go on to The Apprentice. Yeah. Obviously, you go through the whole process. Yeah. And you, you come out. Obviously, there's a lot of ups and downs through that TV mm-hmm. show. It's yep. reality TV. You now get to the point where Lord Sugar's offered you this offered you this job, and obviously yep. Impragas yep. at this point is a business that you've that you've grown to half a million yep. a year, and he's coming on board now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to to be your mentor. He's investing in your business, yep. so he's taking fifty percent ownership, I believe. Yeah, that's it. So when he took fifty percent ownership in your business, what fundamentally that day changed in the way that you're operating and the way that you're getting business? So. I went on The Apprentice because I'd hit my ceiling. And I just want to make this point because it's important, right? I was 25. I didn't know what to do next. I was making money. Everything was all right. But I didn't know what to do next. I didn't know where to go. I knew I needed mentorship. To get to a million, 10 million, 100 million, (coughs) excuse me, um, I needed mentorship. I needed money. Sorry, I need mentorship. Then I knew that if I was going to build my brand to the level that I wanted to, I needed attention, right? I needed exposure. Yeah, what better way than 9 million people watching the show a week? Then I knew I needed cash. I needed investment, yeah? Because I couldn't do it organically. People have to realize that, you know, if you organically grow a business from the profits that you're making and reinvesting, it takes a hell of a long time to do that. Yeah, so if you want to scale fast, you need finance, yeah? And that's either, you know, remortgaging your house. It's either 
getting investment. It's either taking out a loan and personally guaranteeing it. Okay, you're going to need some capital to push a business to the next level. Growing them organically um, takes a long, long time. And, you know, I'm not interested in going slow. So the opportunity came on. I went through the show. I, I went through all of the challenges and the trials and tribulations. You know, 60,000 people apply for that show. Um, and then they, they whittle it down to 18 through all of these different challenges you have to do, crazy challenges. I had to keep going to London to these mad auditions um, for like, you know, it went from 60,000 to 5,000 to 200 yeah, 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 to 100 yeah, yeah, yeah. to 18. And they put you through all of these challenges and crazy stuff. And then I got offered it, went on the show, went through the process and then um, came out victorious. And so he then says, right, okay, with my case, it was slightly different. Usually they start a new business. I had a business. So we bought half of my company effectively for the 250 grand. So no, I just want to make a point because I love this bit. It was three years before I'd quit my job because I read his book. Three years later, he buys half of my company for a quarter of a million. If that ain't fucking law of attraction, I don't know what is, right? That's an amazing, crazy story right and um, still to this day I irritate him because he knows that I say to people that he bought half my company he's like I invested in it no but technically the way it's structured you paid a quarter of a million for 50% so I sold half of that company to a billionaire I don't think anyone has ever done that in the plumbing or construction world um, sold any of their company to a billionaire um, like that so you know it's, it was crazy so okay um, I'm 25 I get this to quarter of a million it goes straight into your bank account so then I have to go down and see him and spend time with his team now most of the people that he gives you right you get him for one hour a month in a board meeting yeah you get his financial director you get his assistant fd and you get his accountant so the majority of it is finances and numbers now at the time i thought so that so you and you completely operate off the finances and off the balance sheet yeah, yeah. Com- uh, so they, you- everything for them is down to the numbers, but they they are manufacturers in technology. That's their background. That's their skill. You know, his guys there had been with him for thirty, forty years. They were all old. You know, Roger, his FD was like seventy. You know, Sugar's seventy. The assistant was fifty. Um, FD. You know, these guys have been with him since like early Amstrad days. So they they knew technology and everything. They didn't know service based business. They didn't know field based operations. They didn't know um, construction. They didn't know trade. So what they gave, were able to give me after a period of time was extremely limited because I thought they're just going to be the gurus of everything. You know, they're going to know how to generate leads. They're going to know how to make sales. They're going to know to hire and find these engineers. They're going to know how to scale your field-based operations, um, your supply chain, and everything else. And most of it really was like about the numbers, about the financials. And and that's how it should be. But um, the numbers um, give you the information to make the decisions that you translate then into real-life business working practices and operations. And so, you know, it's great having an understanding of the numbers, but you still got to be able to translate that into a scalable operation. So, um, uh, that was where kind of, you know, we spent the first few months just getting all of that, getting structured down, getting your board packed down and everything else. And, you know, I very quickly realized, and I went for another defining moment here. I remember the first meeting or the second meeting when we got the numbers and they brought the board pack out. You had your profit and loss, your cash flows, yeah. your balance sheet and everything else. And at that point, I was winging my business, even at half a million. I was a plumber running a plumbing business. I was running it from my bank account. You know, I was, I, I was so hardcore at doing work. We always had 
earned money. We always made profit. But I never really understood my business. I saw my accountant once a year. He told me if I made a profit or not. And off I went again and did the work, right? Never really knew where I stood. And so many people run their businesses because they don't understand accounting properly. So one thing that worked amazingly well for me, or was the best thing I took from it, was to understand finances. They leveled me up because the first meeting, I was looking at these numbers going, fuck, I don't know what these numbers mean. I don't really know what they are. Yeah, I don't know how to read a profit and loss. I don't really understand margins. I don't know a balance sheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I looked at it and I was like, shit, I managed to blag my way through the meeting and I went away thinking, man, I cannot walk into a board meeting with a billionaire ever again um, where I don't know what I'm talking about. I felt like a complete fool. Um, and so that for me was a great lesson because I went away and I literally started watching all videos on accounting. So I knew everything I possibly could before the next meeting, right? So I was able to hold my my own in these meetings because I could hold my own technically and operationally. I knew the industry inside out. There's nothing they could ask that I wouldn't be able to answer. But when it comes to that bit of the business, I didn't know. So they helped me build financial infrastructure. What they was, helped what, me understand finances. What was your profit margin when you was at half a mil? I mean, God knows really, mate. I can't remember to be honest. Maybe something like 20%, I would say. Maybe and, 100k and, a year. And when you scale it f- forward and you scale it to 10 mil, what was your profit margin then? depends on depends on the point in time because what people don't understand my business yeah from 2012 to 2019 yeah or 2020 when I was um I had to sell my business I was forced to sell my business and um my business was always growing so it was always scaling yeah Mm. so there was never a point in time where it settled now a growing business is always a business that is reinvesting so you're always onboarding another layer of operational overhead and cost to fund the next level of growth so it's not like we ever stopped it's become what I'm trying to get out and what you've just said there and what I'm trying what I'm trying to put across is the fact of like when you're trying to get when you're trying to build a 20 or 30 million pound business over here and you're at 10 you are cash sapped because you're funding the the operational structures and layers that need to be in place to allow you to grow to that that's what i'm trying exactly and and in a in a business with with a in a business in in a trade like we're talking about here in plumbing and and heating and all that stuff there are a lot of costs of of workers a lot of costs of uh, uh, structured management materials material costs and everything else and it's just ripping out systems vans it's just insurances insurances kill you in the trade all this stuff just sapping the life out of this out of this thing mm-hmm. so it sounds mm-hmm. great when you get to 10 million yeah. but the problem is your fucking costs are astronomical. as you know turnovers vanity profit sanity cash is king yeah. right but again you know a growing business is not one that you re- at the scale that we were going you know it's unheard of the scale that we grew in this space you don't you not you don't expect to make profits um you expect uh, and uh, you were always chasing a bigger number because I wanted to get to national. The vision for the business was not to make... Uh, by the time I was 27, What's, I had that what? business doing three mil, a le- three mil a year, three or four mil a year, right? And I'd had it systemized. I didn't have to work in it. I could have left it and I would have still had it now. And it would have been made me a few hundred grand a year and I could have moved on and done some other things. But my mission was to be national. It was national was, by hook or crook. Was that... Yeah? Was that- was that though ego driven clouded my vision without a doubt yeah it was literally there should have been times where i slowed down i didn't slow down because Because i wanted to become the biggest and the best so my judgment was clouded based on where we wanted to get to not where we probably were this is where i think a lot of people 
uh, approach life, mm. I have to always think to myself, I'm always like, fuck, how can I get to be in the top, one of the top 10 podcasts in the world and then yep. on from that? That's my vision, right? That's where I want to go to. Yeah, but fucking, you have to, I have to sit back some, at some points and be grateful for, for where yeah. I'm at, the downloads I'm at, what I'm doing and this and the other. Yeah, there's more. There's always fucking more, isn't there? But like, we as humans always want more. We're never, there's not one of us that listens to this podcast or out there in the world that doesn't want more for themselves at any one point. Yeah. But you have to sit there at every level in echelon that you get to in whatever you're doing and sit there and just feel some form of gratitude. Yeah. And that, and the gratitude is what humbles you and get, gets, pulls your ego off that pedestal mm-hmm. for that moment and settles you. And I think we're, you're in such relentless pursuit from what I know mm-hmm. from talking on and off this podcast to you that it kind of, you, you kind of forgot to celebrate three million you forgot to celebrate without a doubt you never celebrate eight million then you get to 10 million and you realize you probably realize that 10 million you're like fuck me i've got a i've got this awesome national beast Mm. but have i got enough cash flow now to fund me to stay at 10 million yeah and not only to stay at 10 million but to accentuate because i never paused yeah 100 percent, and you know just on that on absolutely right you know when you get to a national business it's all well and good getting there but you've got to sustain yeah and every level of growth requires a different level of cost and a different level of competition at this point i'm now battling british gas in every major city british gas is a multi-billion dollar organization under centrica right and Mm. i'm this little independent in the independent world i'm the biggest you know in but in british gas terms i'm a i'm a um i'm a i'm a what's the word in terms I'm of bo- a fly in terms yeah? of boilers if you're doing ten thousand, are they doing sixty thousand? they do a hundred thousand right okay so, so, you're, so, you're, so you're at ten percent i'm doing yeah i'm doing five to ten percent of what they're putting out a year but in the in the independent world at that point i was probably double the size of the nearest competitor yeah so it was an impressive feat what we were able to achieve but if we go back just a step um, so with working with sugar, two years in, yeah, I bought. I was the first person to buy Lord Sugar out, right? First apprentice ever to split with him, and it came from me approaching it, not the other way around. I asked for it because two years in, I was like, I'm coming here every month. They've got nothing anymore to tell me. We know the financial stuff. All I was doing every month was getting right. What are we doing now? Right. What are you doing this for? Why did you make that move? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you do so, this? So you, so you thought yeah. you, you're thinking in your point in time because this is. I think mm. this is ego driven as yeah. well. I, I will get onto this, but mm-hmm. you're thinking, why am I coming here once a month and growing this business only to have to pay more for the half back than what I'm paying now? That's your. That that's you. No, uh, what I'm thinking is what I'm, what am I doing coming here? To have to tell you what the answers are, I wanted to and, be mentored, and, and, and and you having fifty percent of the business that I'm going back there to grow. If I'm honest, there weren't that really wasn't on my I wasn't on my radar. I was just more pissed off that they weren't giving me more guidance, and it always felt like I had to. It was like I was having to explain what was going wrong to somebody that was my boss, yeah. not that was saying, yeah. "Right, Joe, well, yeah. how can we help? What do you need? What can we do for you?" Yeah. What can we do next? How, right, can how, we about sca- this? How, how can we take this from three to six? Y- yeah, 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 exactly. And they right. weren't asking you those questions. No, nah, they were just more, it felt, and it was very, you know, in that boardroom scenario, those three puppets that are Lord Sugar's right-hand people, okay, want to impress Lord Sugar. So it was a bit like a them and me scenario so it just where be, it just they be, would report to Lord Sugar things that were happening almost to get brownie points to point out what Joe was doing wrong. And I'm like... 
what is going on here? You, you work for me. You might be working for him, but you, I, I'm paying you out of this business. Well, I had to pay for their, for their fees. They you didn't just get, you had to pay back out of the 250 grand. I had to give him three grand a month for accountancy fees. I was paying them three grand back out of the 250. The charges that they would, they were charging you back for their services that they were providing out of the money, which was crazy. So, so, so they not only took a position, but they took a consultant on the back of the yeah, permission. they're saying that they give you all of these services included and then you're charging it for you. They give you the money and then charge back. I'm like, man, this is crazy. So I started to get pissed off and then listen, I said to him one day, listen, I'm coming here every single month. You're not helping me anymore. You haven't expected me to have all the answers and at the time, they're also telling me to slow down. Yeah, and um, I was 26, I was 27. Do you think though, in hindsight, them telling you to slow down would have been a good thing? Yes, Definitely, because there was there was I was a young I, I you know I was a young um, entrepreneur you, you, that you, and and when you strip it back you you still felt at that point in your life that you had something to prove to someone that you didn't have something to prove to right kind of it's almost like I'm not even bothered about proving stuff to other people I'm more impro- bothered about improving it um, proving it to me. I care about what I know that I can do. And if I can't do it, I'm letting myself down because I don't give a shit what anybody thinks about me or what they've got to say. And I'm not trying to impress anyone but myself because I know how far I can go. So my potential is what drives me, but sometimes it blinds me. Um, and as I'm getting older and wiser and I've screwed up and failed big time um, in, in um, business and um, it, it kind of humbles me, but it makes me humble not to say I'm not going to go and do it again because I'm relentless in my pursuit now. When I tell you what I've done in the last two years, um, you know, but now I'm doing it with a smarter head on my shoulders, more business savvy, so I don't make blind emotional moves. I make more focused, ambitious moves um, rather than just blindly attacking it to this end goal, um, you know, without any um, understanding of what the consequences can be, you know. But I do believe that if I'd have pulled it off, I'd be sitting here at 32 years of age, a very wealthy man. I'd have, I'd have created this big empire and, you know, things could have been different. Um, but I was humbled by um, losing my business, which I'll come on to. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I went into the meeting with Lord Sugar and I said to him, look, this isn't working anymore. I'm not happy about coming down here. You keep telling me to slow down. I know why, because you're worried about me failing. I understand that. But I'm not going to turn up on the your hired show every year and say, Lord Sugar's the best mentor and um, we're doing really well now. I want to go for it. And I said to him, in your book, I read that in 26 to 29, you made the most of your money because you went hell for leather. I said, I wanted to be like you. I'm not here to be in your shadow. So if you don't want me to um, hit your rep, reputation I'm a man enough to walk away from this now and take it on my own right I will do this and if it fucks up it's on my head not yours and he looked back and said Joe no one's ever spoke to me like that give me some time I'll come back to you he never fucked around 48 hours we did a deal I was out what deal did you what did you I can't say exactly NDA it. Did, okay. Less than what the 250 was if that's the main question yeah yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so less than what the 250 was but he walked away 
Yeah, and we left amicable. But man, I was the first apprentice ever was to it do hard, it. Even though it was less than the 250, was it still hard to pull together the cash at that time to buy it? Not really, because it was a fairly very reasonable amount. It was, it was. we had the cash in the business, yeah. Oh, so, so, the, so the business funded you buying the business back? Basically, yeah. That's, that's, that, yeah. that's, that's decent then. So it was it, good. It didn't have to come out your personal. It didn't have to come out my personal, yeah. So I'm two years in and I'm out. But again, you know, the ballsy, frigging crazy moves that I make, then the next minute pay is a reporting first ever apprentice to you know part with Lord Sugar and we said in there it was a buyout it was a split it was amicable blah 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 but they still want to put their own spin on it right so then I had to go back and tell 50 staff that two years in I've decided to buy Lord Sugar out and now I'm back in charge so I've got big balls right and so anyway 2017 happens we're doing a million a year at that point and then by the time I'm 29 I'm doing a million a month Right in sales. Now we all know that sales, the sales is vanity. What? Um, but sales to achieve that level in boiler sales domestically is still what's, you know incredible. But what's the what's the what's the difference? You had fifty employees. You're doing a million. Yeah, about fifty employees. Yeah, fuck, that's a lot of employees for a million. Yeah, um, was it fifty employees? Fuck knows. It must have been maybe like twenty five, maybe fifty. Some, <laughs> something yeah. along those lines. It was like what the, was it? What, I mean, what, what, exact, what, what, the exact numbers now what um, it, become when, a bit of a blur. But when we hit ten million, we had a hundred. When we were doing a million a year, we must have had. I don't know. I still think we had like thirty. Now the reason that we had so many, because you asked me a question earlier, right? You said when was the pivotal moment that you knew that you needed to change business models? It was when I built this million-pound maintenance company with fifty employees. Yeah. yeah, I'd be I'd be thinking, fuck me, I need to pivot now too. But what it was was because we were doing. Let me put it into perspective. Yeah, you were doing maintenance then, weren't you? Maintenance. Yeah. So we were. That's doing, why you had fifty. Employees. We were doing eight hundred jobs a month, yeah, for something like a hundred thousand pound turnover. Yeah, or eighty grand turnover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? So eight hundred jobs a month. Yeah, hundred thousand pound, eighty thousand pound a month turnover. Right. What now, was, what was the, the profit operation margin on that? Or zero. Yeah, because the jobs were 50, 60, 70 quid, and we were doing hundreds of them. So you needed such a big team of employees in the back end to manage it, do it, organize it. The operational cost versus actually the delivery of the job was a non-viable business model anymore. That's what you don't see in construction businesses being able to scale because it becomes unprofitable. So at that point, I did was I was inflated with employees, but you still needed those employees to do the operational bit. The jobs just weren't profitable enough to sustain it makes sense yeah, yeah 100% so then so I you, went to you, boilers so you're just literally turn o- turning over a million to yeah. spend a million basically yeah or probably even to lose money because um, you know you're, oh, you're, you're not you're not um, you're not running a viable model so then I looked at it and said okay well I either scale back which wasn't on the agenda yeah or I find another market a pivot so then I found out there was a million boilers installed a year British Gas did 100,000 of them at 500 million so Who's got the and rest then of the who's got the rest of them? There's another company, Helplink, that did 15,000 and the rest was one-man band. So I'm like, right, I'm going for that. So in July of 2017, I had these 30 employees. I was the MD of the company. I was wearing a suit at the time. I was in the office. That's what my job was. I said, I'm going to go and buy some leads. So I went and bought like... Um, something like 50 boiler leads or whatever, right? And I started driving around, going to customers' homes, pitching boiler sales to them. Two and a half grand a job. I did like, I don't know, maybe 35, 40 sales um, in that one month and I got about 100 grand worth of revenue. Now, you think what I've just said there. 800 jobs to versus 80,000 yeah. to 40 versus 
um, uh, the same amount of money, yet almost turnover So how much could you cut your employees by? Well, what I didn't do was cut my employees. What I did was scale up rapidly. Yeah. So then I redirected those employees. I cut some of the people who I cut all the service engineers and the maintenance engineers. They were gone. So maybe cut away like 10 engineers or something like that at the time. Yeah, yeah. Got rid of some of the office people, but redirected all of the good people. Yeah. So then we went into boilers. And then from 2017 to 2020, that's when um, we'd expanded across the whole country. That's when we were doing 6,000 boiler installations a year. That's when we had 100 people, like, I don't know, maybe six the employed the rest were subcontractors in the business and we were operating in every major city in the uk yeah so and at 20 september 2020 we won national installer of the year and i kind of it was a weird one because i built i went for that mission because that's what i always wanted to do i went for that mission to put a finger up to lord sugar to say watch what i'm gonna do i can do it um i went for that mission um, because i genuinely believed that at that level, I was going to sell it for millions and millions. Right. Yeah, who doesn't believe that a multinational, a national business doing eight figures is worth selling? Yeah, you know. So I always was chasing that next level of growth and flying by the seat of our pants to be able to get there. But I, you know, everybody, Rich, you hear Elon Musk and all these guys pushing. Teslas had weeks down of single figures where they couldn't make payroll, and they're pushing it and trying to drive but finance. But but there's a re- there's a fundamental mental reason from the way from me looking at the market from the outside that a lot of these boiler makers that are probably equivalent size to you weren't national at that point yeah they were just going okay we'll do that many boilers but we'll just do it in london area yeah yeah yeah. right yeah is that am i right in thinking that well if there is you won't operate that many boilers in a regional place like british gas was national Helplink were national pimlico's london but pimlico offers more than just boilers right. he does boilers bathrooms kitchens maintenance roofing so his empire was built on multiple services not just boilers as a product my downfall was, was that we only did boilers. The cost of the acquisition, right, was astronomical. The operational overhead to keep expanding across the country was massive. And that when we spent all this money on marketing to acquire a customer, we didn't have anything else to sell them. Yeah. Right, okay. So I didn't. I so wouldn't see the customer it's, again for ten years. So it's one-off transactional. It's so like, the one thing that you could have put into that business to make it more profitable for you was when you installed the boiler was to sell them uh, a subscription maintenance program on the back end that would have kept the business. That spinning. would have been a, That would have been an opportunity, or to offer solar, or to offer bathrooms, or to offer something of a size that you could get more um, return on investment for the cost per acquisition. Because yeah? essentially, in any business, but especially as a tradesman your role is when you sold that customer one thing you you sell them everything else yeah like because you want to keep selling back-end things but this bit is where i've got to be crystal i advise our construction businesses is to simplify until you hit a million everyone starts as a one-man band and goes right i'm going to do service breakdown repair i'm going to service social housing domestic customer new builds and they start this one-man band business offering every service to everyone and they have no infrastructure to be able to price, manage, quote, diversify, and that's why they don't scale. Hundred percent, yeah. mate. Because I, I had the same thing with content removal. Yeah, it's like we remove content. Yeah, that's fucking like this. Yeah, right now it's like okay, we remove images, videos, search results, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Instagram accounts. Yeah, and 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 a couple of other things, and we don't do anything else. And yep. then someone comes through for something else, I'm saying, well, go to the competitors. <laughs> yeah, because it's like it's too, it's too, it becomes too difficult. 
to do everything. Yeah. You know, and you can't scale. You can't put systems in place when you're fucking trying to be everything to everybody. Yeah, exactly. And your role as a business is not to be everything to everybody anyway. Yeah. So when you get to this 10 million then, mm-hmm. at what point did you start to know that you did you start to know you're in trouble now? Okay, so we was tough getting there. You know, we were literally reinvesting everything. I didn't get additional finance, yeah? So I was literally, you know, how we even got there was, was uh, God knows how I pulled it off even looking back, you know, um, uh, without millions of additional finance. And, um, and um, so... I got to like September 2019, but there's another important story in this. In September 2019, we won National Installer of the Year. Now, I wanted to be national, yeah? And I'm one of those guys that once I achieve it, I'm ready for the next. It's How did done. it feel, though, yeah. when you got there for you? Well, because you, 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 like me, mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if you take it back to when I was a when I was a boxing trainer, right, when I worked at world title level, I'd pursued that goal mm-hmm. for fucking seven, eight, nine, ten years. Yep. And when I got there and I stood there in the ring, it was a WBO world title fight, I felt completely fucking empty and my ladder had been lent against yeah. the wrong wall. Is, is that similar to how you felt? Definitely. I mean, I stood upon that stage, collected the award, that guy, um, I think it's James Nesbitt from Cold Feet, um, uh, 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 gave it to me. And I looked at everyone. There was about a thousand people in the room, big awards dinner. And the energy just drained from my body. I was just like holding it. And I just thought, this is, I'm done now. I was just like, I'm done. I've come to do this. I've got it. I'm, I fucking did it. That kid at 22 that thought he was going to do it, done it. Right, next. What's next now? And it would, I'd already moved on in my mind. I was like, I want out of this game. Um, uh, I, wasn't, I didn't want to spend my life selling boilers. I didn't want to build a national... Well, I wanted to build a national boiler installation business, but I didn't want to stay in it forever. I, built, I was building it to sell it and get out. I wanted to make millions and exit at 30, this golden boy, with the, after winning The Apprentice. Because from 25 to you know 30, everything I touched turned to gold. I said I had a number one best-selling book. It's built in the class into billionaire boardroom i did a number one podcast in the world on itunes social entrepreneur um did five episodes promoted it got it to number one when i launched it and then never did another episode because i hit number one um i got forbes 30 under 30 when i was 28 out of 18,000 people in europe um and so uh, everything i was doing was just i was just smashing it, it was just easy because after the apprentice right it was the biggest high I've ever experienced with a fundam- with with the biggest crash I've ever had straight after. Yeah, it was like I'd set my sight. The, the apprentice for me in the business world and being an entrepreneur, it's the pinnacle of what you could achieve. There's not really any other awards that you could win or any recognition that you could get for being like the top business person. It's the national and, and, TV show, and that's, and that's kind of and that's kind of what. That's kind of where it went wrong for you, isn't it? Because you, because like me, you pursued recognition, yeah, and you pursued outside opinion mm. on how you felt internally, right? Yeah, and I, I yes, um, I wanted the again, I wanted it, I wanted it to feed. I just the Apprentice one on one. It was like, I knew I could. I just knew I could do it. People always say to me, did you really think you were going to win? And I say, of course I fucking did. Who goes into a competition thinking they're going to come second? You know, no one does, right? Yeah, but some... Some people do, but then they don't win. Yeah, but some people... Yeah, but that's the fundamental key difference is like some people do sell themselves short. Yeah. A, 
80% of the people that listen to this are selling themselves yep. short in their life. I'm asking you right now, if you're listening to this, what are you selling yourself short on? Because yep. you can't lie to yourself. If you listen mm-hmm. to this and you listen to Joe and listen to me and listen to anyone else in life, it's like, you got to this point in the podcast for a reason. What are you selling yourself short on? That is yep. the fucking question because you're all selling yourself short on some area of your life because even I'm selling myself short on some areas of my life now and the reason why I ask that question is to provoke the answer within myself within you mm-hmm. within everyone else it's like you know we, we can always do do more but sometimes the answer isn't always more either I, again you know it comes down to self-belief like you've got to have a sickening self-belief and back yourself first I back myself to the end of the earth because maybe at 15 years of age I'd realised that no one backed me anymore everyone was gone no one was my cheerleader I had no one in my corner so unless I was going to become my biggest fan and push myself to the ultimate level then I was never going to achieve anything now we're told in life you know just look just be more realistic yeah just tone down your dreams a little don't be disappointed I'm like this is what they're telling us as we're growing up when we say as kids we want to be this and we want to be that and then we become more realistic and we end up being a fucking accountant or you know a plumber I'm like as a kid I wanted to be a superstar you know Um, don't tell me that I can't become this person and so you've got to approach this stuff like you believe already that it's done who will back anyone that is 80% convinced on themselves someone comes to me that wants a job or um, has got an idea or you know you can sense in a second whether they really believe whether it's going to be done or not you know and you have to have that mentality and you know the amount of people that I've told the the story to of course I knew I was going to win they think this guy's arrogant well you never could have known that you were going to win look whether I could have or couldn't have, I always would have believed 100 that I was going to win. Because I don't do anything. I don't win anything. And let, let's not say that I don't try things that I know that I'm not going to win. Because I do. But I know already that I am going to lose at it, even though I'm going to try. Yeah, some things I go 100% and I knew The Apprentice, I would win it hands down 100%. I knew it was in my destiny. And law of attraction, I believe beyond the thing. The thing is just the thing. Yeah, the destiny is what the universe has laid out for me. And that was one of my um, destinations. That was part of my destiny. It was part of the story. And there's loads of shit I've done going into it going, this is going to be a disaster, Joe. Why are you even still going? Your ladder's halfway up the wrong wall here. Or you're halfway up the wrong ladder. But but then I keep going, knowing I'm going to lose. But sometimes the reason why we keep going, even though subconsciously we... Because the truth of the matter is, we all fucking know... uh, uh, all different times in our life when our ladders lent against the wrong wall yep. right because there's an inner wisdom in your gut that will tell you the problem is that not many people spend enough time in silence to be able to listen to the whisper yeah right and if you can listen to the whisper and listen to your gut then that then you can then you can make moves that are better suited to your life but mm-hmm. but everyone's in the relentless pursuit of of what looks what looks good and seemed good five years ago and and when they started the journey that they that they don't get a time mate I'm just I've I, I got podcasts booked in all, all this week right and I've got podcasts booked in next week then I'm going to take a break and I'm going to think yeah I'm going to think about okay how do I how do I scale it what's the right move what's the right thing yeah because if you don't take that break and take that take that little bit of a pause like you never took in that uh, gas business mm-hmm. which, which is what we're talking about if you don't take that pause you can't you, you could relentlessly get to a point mm. and be like fuck me I get this destination I thought was great yeah fucking destination with a fucking palm tree yeah and I feel shit mm. 
and the, so many people go through life feeling mm. shit on mm. the journey. You're 100% spot on, absolutely right. And, you know, taking that time to take stock and consolidate, um, you know, consolidation of where you're at and is it where you want to be and are you going down the same road? But we, you, 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 your ambition or the um, the kind of... Just that relentless pursuit is dragging you down. You know, I definitely dragged myself to that goal rather than kind of being in control. It was the tail wagging the dog at times, 100%. And um, what, what, You know when you go back with this National mm. Boiler Awards, right? Mm. This National Installer Award, you've got this national thing. So that's, so that's satisfied that ambition. You've realised that your ladder's yeah. standing against the wrong wall. You've realised you've potentially traded off the wrong metric yeah. for a long period in your life, yeah. right? which is a great learning to have before you're 30 years old. Yeah. Let, let me tell you, it's a great learning to have. And we've we've both had it at different mm-hmm. uh, different things, both before we're 30. I think I think we're fucking privileged to have it. Though, yeah, right? without Some people don't have it till they're fucking 50. Bro, yeah. right? mm. We could have wasted another 20 years. Yeah. But how long was it from there to you losing the business? Very quickly, because we were already, even at National Award, you know, the finances were so tight as we were growing. We won national based on the quality of what we did, the number of installs, the size of the infrastructure. Um, but, you know, finances were still very, very tight. This is September 2019. November 2019, Brexit's happened. Um, the winters are getting warmer and warmer and warmer. I'm only selling one product. I'd opened up all these new cities in 2019 that I wasn't very sure on and didn't know. I was in Cornwall, fucking Wales, the end of the earth. I was in Scotland, Edinburgh, Glasgow. I was in all these places where they didn't have, uh, you know, we, we weren't set up and established. I was spending huge sums of money to fund them. Um, and so um, uh, very quickly, the winter didn't happen. And, you know, we had to do at one point like 50,000 a day in new sales to break even, right? It was an astronomical number of new boilers. The pressure that I had um, at that time at 29 was insane. Like, it was horrible. I who fucking hated did, who it. Did, who did you call for advice when you were facing this? Well, at the time, I had um, uh, uh, a good mentor, a guy, Adam Stott. Check him out. He's a good entrepreneur. And um, he lost a business. Um, he built this car empire to 50 million by the time he was like done in the early 30s. And he lost it. We went into liquidation. And he was a, he was a mentor of mine. And um, he was an incredible support when my business was on the way down. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you for a while in a second. So November 19 here. And the leads just dried up in a lot of these towns. We weren't getting the leads. I had a 35 national sales team and if they can't sit any leads then we've got nothing to sell but my overhead was still there so the leads disappeared I couldn't make the sales so my cash was eroding at an insanity level that literally in like a few weeks we were going to be out of cash because it was such a it was a day by day direct sales business if the fee money didn't come in the other end there wasn't huge sums of money to keep funding it so it was so important that that sales function 50 grand a day was happening as a bare minimum yeah. So any, um, you know, five of my sales guys were off or, you know, leads stopped happening in some towns and we were in the shit. So it was a horrible business model to run and a position to be into a level at that size without the additional finance. Um, 
that I knew I was in the shit. I knew that I wasn't going to sustain. Um, and so um, I went to a couple of the different suppliers. Um, I offered them a debt for equity swap because we owed lots of money to suppliers. They weren't, they, one of them, which you owed the most money to, wasn't interested in doing it. And I was like, but we're going to go out of business here. So you've got really no choice. Like we need to do a deal. They weren't interested in doing a deal, which was crazy. And um, so I, um, I knew that we were running out, but I still had, you know, all of my staff. Yeah, um, I care about them first and foremost. Yeah, because if you don't look after your people, they won't look after the customers. So I had a hundred staff, all these families relying on me. It was near Christmas of 2020. I'm 30 years of age or 29 years of age at this point. 30, 29, something like that. Yeah, I had all these families relying on me near Christmas, and I'm like, fuck, man. Like, if this goes down, what am I gonna do? Like, forget my own personal finances and stuff. I can recover, right? But what am I gonna do for all these people that have committed so long to me? I can't have them out of a job or whatever. And if I, I can let the company just go into liquidation and I could deal with it no problem so I um I was desperation mode trying to find a solution and I found this recovery specialist business right so they bought businesses in trouble and they did deals quickly but they didn't pay much for it right so um, I found this company REL Capital and um, this was over Christmas the worst time when like, everything's shutting down and everything else and like it was the worst Christmas of my life I was in hell yeah is the only way that I can describe it I was in fucking hell at that point I had this empire that was crumbling and I was still quite a young guy and you know, I was just thinking, all of this. What, what am I going to do? What? How how was it, how was it hurting this this ego that you'd built from massively? Because I thought about everyone's going to call me a failure. They're going to be like, because everybody there was a lot of people that wanted to see me fail. That for so many years just kept seeing me win more. So they were like, they couldn't stand it that I was achieving. And there was so much of that when you get put into the public eye the game changes yeah you get your fans and you get your haters yeah and what I saw was a lot of people a lot of my lo- a lot of my locals my people turned to be my haters and it's the strangers that become your fans and want to see you succeed it's very very strange but you know I was in the height of The Apprentice is a big fucking show it's one of the main ones right 9 million people a week and in my season that was when after I was speaking to my head of marketing yesterday and I always joke about after my series it went downhill but actually it was my series and then the ratings started to nosedive after um, I won but you know it was at the peak of its time everywhere I went my life had changed I was getting noticed by everyone I was getting all these opportunities I was going in nightclubs in London I was getting all this female attention it was amazing I fucking loved it right but when you put yourself in that public eye you're open for scrutiny yeah so it means you've got to have even bigger balls businesses fail every day that no one hears about yeah because nobody knows because they're not in the limelight. Worse stories than mine, but I put myself in the limelight. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm fully um, in acceptance with I put myself in a position to be ridiculed if it went wrong. And I also grew at an insanity pace that the reality, the probability was that failure was a very, very big option. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah it's not yeah, like yeah. it's a, um, you know, I'm going to guarantee you, to win it. You, you, went, you, know? you, went, you went balls to the wall for a fucking long time. Yeah. And, and, you know... Obviously, you didn't pause. Yeah, didn't the, the, didn't pause. It, it was it was the pauses. It's like if you go swimming and you swim hundred lengths, you're going to be fucked at the end. Yeah, do you know what I mean? But if you pause every ten, yeah, you might make a hundred. But also, and be in a Frankie, position. there's a chance though, right, that it could have put, put it, it could have worked. 
Yeah. And so, like, if we went back to when I won The Apprentice, like, they make you go away for nine weeks. I was 25 running a maintenance business that I was the operational center from. And my part-time lady stepped up to run my business, and I disappeared off the face of the earth for nine weeks. Yeah. From Sunday night, I emailed all the estate agents. My auntie on Italy, in Italy is um, really ill. She lives on a goat farm. They're in the mountains. There'll be no signal. I'm going off radar for a few weeks. Don't worry. Everything's okay. Yeah. And so, would who would risk a half a million pound business for the chance to go on to a show that they've spent three years building for the chance to go on to a show that that one tradie after, you know, no one in construction has ever been on that show since or before would go on and win a billionaire's investment. I am prepared to put it all on the line for that 0.01% chance of creating a better future. Yeah. And so for me, that's what's important because I know what tomorrow looks like if I don't do anything. And that was in my mind at the time. Like if I go away, what's going to happen? Well, I'll come back and my business is bust. Then I go again, right? And so with Impra, it was if I can have that one shot of becoming a multi-millionaire at uh, 30 years of age and building this empire and having a legacy that I could leave, that's worth more than me building a shitty little fucking couple of million pound systemizable business. I could do that in my sleep. I'd already done it. I don't need to. Um, I can get back to that at any time. And so you know, I, I went for it. I shot so big and unfortunately in that time, but a lot of other times I'd shot big and I scored. That time I shot and I missed and um, I, I found this recovery specialist and um, they agreed to take on all the staff. Yeah. Boom. 100 people. They kept their frigging jobs. I'm like, yes, that's a big one, Ted. They agreed to take on all the customer contracts and all the warranties. Boom. All my customers that have backed me are going to be loyal. But the one thing that they wouldn't do, right, was take on the debt. Yeah, the company had about 15 million, 15 million, had about 1.5 million pounds worth of debt. Yeah, so they didn't agree to take on the debt. So they bought the brand, they bought the assets, they took the people, they took the liability, and they created a new business with it. Yeah, because they kind of, that's what so you what could happened, do. So what happened to the debt? You have to go bankrupt. So after, no, I voluntarily liquidated. Yeah, so there's a difference. When you run a limited company, you can voluntarily liquidate the debt. Yeah. So you don't have to, I don't personally owe anybody any money because I don't personally guarantee anything. A limited company is a legal entity that can trade with another limited company. So mostly the people that lost out on money were suppliers, right? And I'm very sorry that they lost that money. Um, it was horrible that it had to happen. I didn't walk away with millions, not like I stole or took their money, right? I didn't walk away with basically nothing as well, right? And you know, I said to all of those people um, at the end, because you have to do this creditors meeting and they have to come. It's like they come with pitchforks as to why it went wrong and everything else. I said to each and every one of them in the face, there's a room of 30 of them. Listen, when we were doing business and business was good, you knew that we were rapidly growing and you understood the risk and you chose to fund it. You chose to offer the credit and you chose to do the business. So you can't come here now when it's gone sour and say that you didn't know anything about it or play the innocent game. You knew exactly what you were getting yourself in for from 2016 to 2019, we went from no boiler installations to the largest national, right? That comes with a massive amount of associated risk. And if you didn't interpret or appreciate the level of risk, then that's not my fault, right? Because I was always telling you and keeping them up to date on where we were at, yeah? So there's a level of, um, there's a level of, um, you know, onus on that business to, if you can't afford to lose it, don't offer the credit. And those guys trade with their suppliers as a limited company to a limited company. So didn't go bankrupt. And this is what people, you know, so many 
people say to me, you went bankrupt. I hear see on ads and stuff that we put out. My name would never went bankrupt. We voluntarily liquidated. Now, what happens after you voluntarily liquidate? All my staff got 2 p over to the new business. They all kept their jobs. I'd done that. I'd done my bit for them because I could have just liquidated and walked away without anything and shut everything down and walked away. But I fought and battled for my people to keep their loyalty for them because of the loyalty they gave me. I did everything that I could um, for, to help them. I did everything for the customers. And I even did it for the suppliers because I wanted to create a new business for them so they could trade with the new business to get their money back so they could keep trading with the new company so they were going to make back what they lost right with the continued sales um and so that was where I was at. And when you liquid, when you voluntary liquidate, you um, go, you have the insolvency um, uh, service basically come in and they um, they look at your business. It's like the, the government department, yeah, um, and um, the secretary of insolvency uh, and so on. And they do investigations in your business. I recently got back my report, yeah. And if I'd have done anything wrong, ethically, unethically, um, screwed anything up, would have been a crook, then they would have struck me off as a director. Director. Got my um, notification back like, oh, I think it was about three months ago now or, or a, a couple of months ago. And they've said, uh, Mr. Valente, uh, um, we, we've um, don't completed our investigation. They go through all the finances, all the books, everything else. And we've found that there's been no unethical business practices happening here. Yeah. Okay, so you're not going to be expelled as a director. So it means the companies that I've got now that are great and are profitable can continue to stay on as a director and can continue to run. So it shows I wasn't a crook and I didn't screw anybody intentionally or rob the money, right? Mm. which people think in this scenario. Loads of people must think that about me, but it's not true, right? If the business went down because of the reasons that I've explained, and that kind of backs that up. Um, And so... You know, I am at 30 years of age, January 2020, signed over parts of Impra to this new business, um, signed over the signed off the liquidation for the rest of the business, and I was out and basically at the bottom again i lost everything did you yeah. feel kind of relieved though i was i was relieved um relieved but also in hell like it was the it was i can't describe that period of my life was like a, it was like in it was in the abyss it was horrible you know, what I was going for at the time mentally, I was just so insecure. I was just like thinking, what a fuck up. Like, you know, and I was questioning my ability and was it my fault? And, you know, um, am I a bad businessman? And what are people going to say? And, you know, all of this type of stuff. And, um, you know, what's going to happen? I didn't know, um, you know, and, and so... It was horrible, especially because I hadn't. It hadn't come from any bad place. It come from you know uh, the market changing. There's one thing you can't control in business: it's the market. When the demand slows, there's nothing you can do about it. Just like you know when Nokia, what, um, when iPhone came out and people no longer wanted Nokia's, right? The demand changed to iPhones. They didn't have a thing. They didn't have a product to to compete with it. The market dropped out for their services. Gone. Same with BlackBerry. Same with so many businesses as time goes on. You know, Sugar's empire went down when he. Um, uh, uh, the market changed again for him or he put in some yeah. bad hard drives and stuff and you know the market changes and there's not a lot that you can do about it but maybe you know I shouldn't have grown so quick but if the market had sustained yeah and those things hadn't happened I'd still be in business but well like like you said it, you, you, we could be talking now and it could that Impragas could have been 50, 60, 70 million yeah. 100 million pound business by now yeah you just don't know and if you'd had the cash to be able to ride it out for another 12 months, yep. it's a totally different conversation. Exactly, like, yeah. It's a totally different conversation. You then come out with nothing. Yeah. 
and you start you you start to sell you think to yourself well I believe you started to sell how to how a tradesman can scale to that first million pound basically yeah and look you know at the time I'm 32 now nearly 33 yeah and this is two years on so I'm sitting here much more comfortable I didn't used to be able to talk about it Right, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't approach it. Um, I had no confidence. I'd, I'd lost my confidence for a period of time. Um, but now I've bounced back and done what I've done. I realised that it was the market and it's not me. And actually, I am a good businessman and I can pull stuff off. And actually, I went bust at 30 years old. I genuinely believe that I'd maybe got too cocky. I think that the universe, God, gave me a right uh, hook and put me down on my backside think, and said, right, yeah. young man, you need to learn a lesson. And he, they took everything from me. I genuinely he, believe that was a higher power not the market you know you you needed checking yeah if you you, because even knowing you now and talking to you now for me Mm -hmm. is a hell of a lot easier than that joseph valente that was that was that joseph valente yeah because it's the different conversations Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean because you got because you you've you must have realized by now that there's nothing to prove to anyone else but yourself yeah whereas before whether you'll agree with me or not, yep. there was a different. There was a different. It was a different guy. Yeah, it was a different guy, and he did have something to prove, and it wasn't just to himself. Yeah, without like, a doubt, hundred percent. Without a doubt, there was a there was a lack of, in my opinion, as from my childhood, there was mm-hmm. a lack of love for self. Yeah, and that lack of love for self meant you had to prove something to not only yourself but to other people. Yeah, yeah, and it and and you've had that humbling, like we've all had, where you get pops in the face mm-hmm, with that jab mm-hmm. and it humbles you a bit and now you've gone and you've got your laptop out and at the time you've you've you started with nothing again and you've had and you've created this online business where you're doing webinars and you're selling six seven eight yep. courses and you're earning more money cash flow wise at a higher profit margin than you've ever fucking done before without a doubt so so I, I, january happened um i spent the whole month feeling sorry for myself couldn't really get out of bed lost all motivation um didn't want to look at my phone like just felt like shit broke up with my missus moved out of that house that ended up my three-year relationship ended at the same time um it literally took everything from me ended up in an apartment in peterborough and i was kind of like what the fuck like you know i was just super depressed then i woke up one day and i said get the fuck up right get up be a fucking man and go and own it. Like, stop being a little bitch, right? And um, there was an article that I read online, and I tried to look for inspiration for people that had failed catastrophically and in a big way um, to try and find it. And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything. And that's why now I like talking about it, because I hope this inspires and empowers people that I'm not afraid to tell you that success isn't guaranteed and failure isn't final, and you can get back up again. And I want to utilize and tell this story more now that I'm back and I feel confident to be able to um, that it is business is a risk and there's a lot that can go wrong and but you can get back up so I'm going to share more about it always um, but I read this story about this woman um, that had gone bust and she was able to rebuild and I thought she can do it so can I like dust yourself off get up it's water under the bridge um, and be rebuild and I looked at my journey yeah and I said what went wrong and if I was a, be- and I believe that the best businesses are born out of the best problems, right? Because people, if you can f- fix a problem, yeah, in the market, you've got something, yeah. And so I looked at it and said, "Well, Joe, 
At 22, give yourself a bit of credit. You was a plumber. At 29, you was running a multi-million pound business that was national. Not many people can level up to that level in that short period of time, you know, as they're doing it without really any education or proper um, training or whatever. So you did some things right, yeah, but you also did some things wrong. And you approach this as a plumber running a plumbing business, not a businessman running a plumbing business. And as you leveled up and every level of growth that you achieved, you had to acquire a different set of skills. Most people don't grow because they don't have that, that increased level of skill, so they don't know what to do next or people grow too quick like I did without the skills of being able to manage it. The business outgrows what you're able to control and then you're fucked, yeah? So I said, plumbers run planning businesses, electricians run electrical businesses and builders build houses. But who's teaching these construction guys how to run a business? I wanted to go into training. I wanted to go into personal development. Um, I love this world. It's what I'm passionate about, what I'm inspired to be. Um, I'm excited about it. And um, I was going to go in all entrepreneurship. And uh, uh, I did, um, I started this event business and it was March 2020. I did my first event. Yeah. Put all the money I had left into this event with my guy, Adam Stott, who's a, he went into training and development after his business went down, put it into this event and um, had been planning and everything else. And we were going to do all business. Wasn't going to do just construction at that point. And um, March 2020, I put six grand into it, filled it out with 200 businesses or signups. And then the night before, Mass gatherings were cancelled. Lockdown came, killed my event dead. Yeah, I'd put all the money into it, been building up to it, raised it. it was in South Bank in London, opposite Canary Wharf in Hilton, and um, killed it dead. Another massive blow. And I was like, shit, this is crazy. And so what that did was force me to go online. And I was like, right, entrepreneur. Uh, entrepreneur I'm going to hold off on but I can do construction yeah there's no one in the space doing it it's a complete niche right and so I got my phone out um, got a whiteboard and I said construction business growth secrets 2020 yeah and started doing lives and at the end of it I was holding up a bit of paper saying if you want to be coached by me ring this number yeah and so I started charging a thousand pound an hour within literally um, a week I'd got 20 clients paying me a thousand pound an hour I was having 20 grand coming in a month just off coaching then I started doing webinars. I was clearing 25 grand in an hour and a half on a webinar in lockdown because I'd created a sales and marketing program for construction businesses, teaching them how to grow. How long did it take you to create the program? Literally an hour. You literally, what, an, an hour, hour. an, an hour. hour I pulled together because I'm fucking a beast at sales and marketing. Yeah, I've spent millions on it and done millions in sales. I am a guru in the game at sales and marketing. Yeah, I am a monster in the space. So I put together the method that I used to sell the boilers. One thing I did extremely well in Impra was sales. Yeah, that was the best bit of our business was sales, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. We were monsters at sales. So you, I know you're just selling the wrong. Th- you're just selling not, not well a not, product without enough margin, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. or without an upsell. You know, my customers now buy ten things from me. My biggest customer in the trade mastermind, bearing in mind I've been going and only going two years, has spent seventy-five grand with me. Yeah, business doing like a few hundred thousand. They just keep investing. So when you acquire a customer, they keep spending. You keep they keep buying the next thing, more access, more training, so on and so forth, right? And so um, I did. The, I was doing these webinars, and people just showing. Everyone was at home. Everyone was at home. Construction businesses were worried about competing. They knew they needed to change their brand, their strategy, their leads, their sales. And I'm literally sitting in my apartment behind a desk with a laptop going through a webinar that I've made after reading Russell Brunson's um, Expert Secrets, banging 25 Gs in an hour, right, with no overheads. 
no overhead and pulling a hundred grand a month in so, basically profit. <laughs> yeah. So I went from um, uh, millions and millions in sales, fairly wealthy. I'd say Emperor at one point was probably valued at a multi-million pound business to bu- to broke, not bankrupt, to fucking broke. No income, only my savings you, to had, go on. Had you not got a lot of savings? No, I hadn't. No, because my lifestyle was pretty crazy as well. Yeah. You know, I lived, I lived for my lifestyle. Yeah, you know, I I sustained a. Um, I am a short term for a couple of years after the Apprentice. I was a Z list celebrity. Maybe I was a A, then a B, then a C, then a D, then a. But I was in London. I was going to London. I was spending money. I was looking good. I was dressing good. I had nice cars, nice women, fucking beautiful houses. I didn't fuck <laughs> around. I didn't live the right way. I was spending my money right spending it all yeah I was fucking good at earning it so I didn't think it was ever going to stop so I keep spending it right so I didn't have a lot of savings um, and so to quickly be able to come back from broke yeah losing my empire to now making 20 grand a month in coaching I'm pulling almost 100 grand a month in from webinars you know I'm back in the game in no time and people couldn't believe how quickly I was able to get back in the game from losing everything you know people look at me now and there were people watching in must be like how has he done this because you know I'm two years in now yeah we literally um kind of really kicked it off in kind of June 2020 in lockdown yeah first lockdown and um I'm two years in we've done four million in sales I've got 25 staff I've launched Three other businesses. I've got Trade Recruit. I've got tra- Trade Recruit as a recruitment company. I've got Trade Coach as a coaching business. I've got multi-millionaire um, coaches that train my construction people and I pay them and then I sell their services. I've got Trade Mastermind, which is the big training company. That's events. That's e-learning. And how many staff you got? Stuff. How many 25. Staff? And what you turn over now? Four million. Four million. Four million. Inside two years. Yeah, inside two years. Yeah, and very profitable business. I've just launched a new website business called Trade Digital. So we're selling websites to construction businesses. And it's been absolutely incredible. It's been incredible. And, um, you know, again, this is why I'm sat here now going, shit, you know, I was just in the wrong market. You know, and you know, I look at Stephen Bartley, he's like 29, right, whatever. And he was in social chain and he exited and sold for like 50 million. Well, he grew that business to a, a global I th- I brand. Think, I think he got out for a fucking lot more than 50 million. Was it? I don't, I have yeah. no idea what it was, but um, I think they, they got like 112 grand private equity, didn't they? 112 million or something. I don't know what they split him and that uh, was it Dominic, M- Dominic McGregor or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So they got out and they were in the right game at the right time, but Impri built an empire. It wouldn't like, I can't explain how big that business was and how much I should have got for the work that I did. I, I built something that was just in the wrong market and it taught me a very big lesson. I, bu- I blew the wheels off the wrong product. You have to know when to quit and get out of that vehicle into another one. My uncle once told me this, Joseph, life's a journey. Yeah, you're in a taxi, you're in a taxi right now. You've left your house and you're in a taxi. What did you say to him? Tim, uh, Impro is just like, it's, I love it, but I know it's not going to make me a billionaire. And he's like, Joe, wait. Yeah, you've got to go out the taxi. You've got to get to the bus station. You've got to get on the coach, get to the train station. You've got to get in the train, go to the airport, get on the plane, go across the other side of the world. But you can't take a taxi to Australia. Yeah, um, you've got to get into a new vehicle to get to to go a longer distance. But you gotta, um, but you gotta always appreciate the vehicle that you need at the time to get you to where you got to get yeah, to first. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is, 
you were trying to fucking get to Australia in that first business. Yeah, without a in, doubt. In a taxi. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And now I know when to call it a day because one thing, you know, it's never quit. You know, there's the entrepreneur thing, you never quit. You never quit. No, a smart man knows when to quit. Yeah. yeah now that I've got past all of that, I need to prove a point to people and prove a point to Lord Sugar and all this, not I can build this business. Now I'm thinking with a smart head. And go, right, okay, actually, what do I need to do? Yeah. And so now I know that if the time comes when the vehicle's got too big, because the trade mastermind is not going to make me um, uh, a billionaire again. But because the what, market's where it is. But I know not to blow the yeah. wheels off trade mastermind. But you, but, you, but, you, but you know how much legs there are and how profitable it is in online education. Yeah. And you can take... You can take that cash flow and you can put it into commercial property, or yeah. build, or build a build a portfolio of residential property, or yeah. you could bu- or you could buy a build apartment. So that vehicle, that cash cow, is going to fund what you do next. Yeah, exactly. And that's I think that's kind of the realization from what you've mm-hmm. said that I've seen that's changing you from last time. Yeah, without a doubt, it is knowing um, where you're at and what vehicle you're in, and being clear on where you want to get to. But business models are really important. Like there are some business models out there that are just shit and do not work. Um, and so knowing what business model um, What is, is the best business model that you know of right now? Is it education? E-learning is insane because everybody wants to buy somebody else's knowledge. Who would want to? If my, com- my guys that, buy- that work- come to Trade Mastermind, they are buying my eight years of success and failure. Yeah, it's a fast track. It's not get rich quick. It's a cheat code. Right, the reason that they're scaling their businesses, we've helped loads of businesses to grow. I've helped a few of the boiler businesses sell. You know, my two biggest success stories in two years, by the way, while I've been building my own. My first one was Gary Ashton. He was with me since um, two months into the trade mastermind. I took him from 150 grand in a boiler business to 1.5 million, and we sold it to his management team for like 150 grand in a year and a half. And he got out and exited. So we got 150k for it, plus the growth, plus from building the business. Yeah. Then I've got Paul. Selman, who recently went from 200 grand to 1.2 million, got out and sold for six figures. So I've helped them scale very quickly, learning our method, all the stakes to all the mistakes to avoid, replicate the successes, and then they've sold. We've helped so many construction businesses. We don't just work with plumbers; we work for all trades um, to scale up. We teach them marketing fundamentals, branding, how to sell, how to scale, how to hire, systems, processes, understanding finance. So they actually and know when, and when to sell. And when to sell, which is very important. But not everybody wants to sell, but some people do. And we've proven that we can take my failure... Yeah, and success. And I've changed. We've got 2,500, 3,000 customers. I've changed thousands of lives with the bad experience that happened to me. And I've took what happened and sold it as a solution to their problems. And it just goes to show that it is those real life problems and those failures well, pe- can be pe- valuable well, to well, other people. Well, people, people, can, people can resonate with it. I mean, I'm sure... After a fucking hundred podcasts, that I, yep. could, I could now sell sell a course of how to do a fucking hundred podcast and book the kind of guests that I've booked because there aren't many podcasts. So here's that have an idea that. for you then, right? Yeah. Then. So with the trade mastermind, right? We've recently sold three podcasts. 
Yeah, two construction businesses. Off the back of the Trade Mastermind one, we got it to number two in the world on iTunes in business, on Apple in business, yeah? Next to Stephen Bartlett's. It was literally there to there in business, the Trade Mastermind. We launched that about 12 weeks ago, yeah? And it's now dropped down to somewhere in like the top 200 or something, right? So off the back of that, we did a free event to my customers, a social media event at the event. I said, right, one of the services we're now offering is podcast. Yeah, for 10 grand, I'll do you, a, I'll launch a podcast for you, right? Launch a podcast and you get 12, episodes. So the first one we launched was what now? Three weeks ago, I think, Izzy. Um, we did Mick Norris, Don't Get Left Out in the Cold, got to number 17 in business. Uh, number 15, no, got to number 12 in business um, on Apple in all business categories. Yeah. And um, we sold that package for 10 grand. So now you've got your brand and everything that you do, you could easily sell podcast training, easily. Yeah. Right. And you can get a good amount of money for it. Launch, give them the launch model, give them everything else. It's a huge opportunity there. There's a huge opportunity. Everybody wants to do this game right now, and it's a great opportunity for so many. So, you know, I'd be turning this into a training business as well if you want to do it and you want that income stream. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean it's definitely something. It's a great opportunity. It, I've always seen the opportunity there in, mm. in, 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 in e-learning in courses in that yeah. space. I've, I've always been reluctant to do it uh, yeah. f- t- as of yet because of like, you know, I'm just refining of, of where I can best serve the world. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I've been, I've been constantly, I've had fucking hundred ideas yep. until I'm absolute on it. I don't do nothing. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to, I'm going to have a little jot down. After I've just looked at that time. We've been going for two hours got, and 30 I, minutes. I got, yeah. And I am abs, that is sun yeah. is killing me. Yeah, through. Yeah. Hopefully I'm looking at Izzy thinking, please don't tell me I'm sitting sweating the whole yeah, time yeah. while you're filming nah, this. Nah, like, the sun's not glistening off my head. Mate, I just, I, mean, uh, I just, I just <laughs> want to touch on a few more Mate, I know this is a long podcast for people and I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate all of you that have stayed this long and, and I just want to touch on a few more points before we leave this podcast. One of the, one of the things I want to say is like, firstly, like congratulations for fucking getting back up and doing it again. I know Thank when you. you're from a small area like this, I know how much it hurts to have people look at you like you're like you or want to see, want to pull you back down. Yeah. I know how hard it is to then go again and to kind of prove it, I know that on a personal level very fucking well, especially around here. So credit to yourself for that. But the one thing I want to touch upon before you is like how much the business side of things has affected your relationships. Mm-hmm. Because obviously you're a young dad. Yeah. And, and, and everything's gone on there. And I just want you to touch on that and how it, and how, and how it all kind of came to a head with that. Well, I mean, how business has affected my personal relationships is disastrous in most cases. Um, it's destroyed them. Um, I would say that, you know, you sacrifice so much to build a business and especially one to a level that you lose a lot of people. You lose a lot of people because, you know, your business becomes your baby. And my business was my baby. You know, I now actually have a son who is a baby and I love him to bits. And he's, and in four weeks on the 7th of August, he's one years of age. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me. But I still work ridiculously hard right now because I'm building a legacy for him. But, you know, I lost my first girlfriend when I started in Prony a few months into it way back in 2020, 2012. Yeah. Um, and since then, I've never really been able to keep down a relationship. My life has always been my business. Um, I've lost like really close friends because of business and more because of them not me because of the jealousy that comes from doing better from people that you'd expect to be your biggest fans you lose a lot of relationships but you gain new ones along the way right that's life right so you pick people up along the way you drop people off um uh it's affected um all sorts of um relationships 
you know, and again, you know, in having a son now, it's um, been very difficult. As soon as Josie was born, my business was in a position where I still needed to continue to work. I'm still in a startup two months, two years mm. in. You know, I'm committed. I don't fuck around, right? And so, you know, I put a lot of pressure on my businesses to grow. As you know, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to um, do something. So it's not like my business is ever in a, um, a slow moving state where it ticks along. There's always pressure because I'm always pushing growing to the next level um, and that's the environment that I know and I and I feel comfortable in I don't like calm quiet environment where there's no fires to put out that makes me feel like I'm going nowhere right depresses the fuck out of me to be honest um, and so I went to work like literally the next day after Jodie was born probably didn't give my partner the attention that she needed wasn't really there for her um, didn't really know how to handle it didn't understand who I should be how I should be you know I've, I've been on my own really since I was kind of a, a young teenager and always battled for myself. So it's difficult to be good to other people. I don't know how to, um, in some circum- instances, I don't know how to be a person. I don't know how to be a supportive person. I know how to go to work and make sure financially you're fully protected and you ain't got to worry and everything else. And that's kind of you know what I made peace with that that's the contribution that I can provide. Because a lot of people that, you know, could be sat next to the partner on the chair and, oh, are you okay, love? Do you need anything? Blah, 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 blah. And they're broke as shit and they're worried about paying the next bill. But he's there for her all the time, right? Now, that's not me. I'm a lone ranger. Yeah, I like to be by myself a lot. I don't do small talk. Well, I say that now, two and a half hours in. I don't do small talk. Um, and I live in my head a lot. I live in the future a lot. And um, and um, I find it difficult to be good does, to people living, in that way. It's does, a strange one. I don't know. Does, li- does living in the future so much, though, cause you a little pain in terms of like the fact that you're not present? Sacrificing the sacrificing who you are for what you might become um, is definitely that. But the more that I get older, the more that I know I'm doing it. It's not like I'm not even conscious to it, right? I know that I'm missing the moment because I'm living for the next one and not appreciating this. And maybe one day I'll be able to do that. But until that day comes and everybody says, well, when is that day? When is that day? I don't fucking know when that day is, right? <laughs> I don't know when the day is, right? I just know that I am obsessed with yeah. living the potential. Potential. I want to be a billionaire. If I get to it, when I get to it, I'm getting to it, okay, that I won't be satisfied. Because at yeah. every level of um, achievement, it just goes, well, that was fucking easy. I yeah. remember when I won The Apprentice, it was like, well, that was as easy as I thought it was going to be. What else can I now do? And I don't sit on things. You, for too long, it was like, right, done it, well done, Joe. Pat on the back, tomorrow's here. What are we going to do now? Yeah, you know, we've got to be this next yeah. thing. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a fucked up guy, to be honest, in some circumstances, but, I, but, but it's but, just but, like... But it's, everyone who's trying to do things at your level, yeah. or has already done it, or is doing it, or in the pursuit of it, we're all a little bit fucked up. Yeah. When, when, when you think about it, you have this big, audacious fucking goal, mm-hmm. right? It's out there. People are going to fucking have an opinion on it one way or another. Yeah. So you have to just keep relentlessly pursuing it. Yep. It's fucking hard. Yep. It's horrendous. You have to, you're going to get punched in the face a fucking lot, whether it's mm-hmm. business, whether you're pursuing the best podcast, whether you're pursuing being a footballer, yep. whatever you're going to do, you're going to get that. Mm-hmm. And you just got to be able to fucking run through it and do it. But if there was one piece of advice, if you checked out the planet tomorrow, and this is our final words, if you had to check out the planet mm-hmm. tomorrow, right? 
and you couldn't leave nothing behind, not even your fucking suits, right? Yeah. <laughs> not even your suits, mate. What piece of... I'll take them with me. What piece... <laughs> <laughs> Definitely wouldn't leave those behind. <laughs> what, what, what piece? What piece of... What piece of... What is the best piece of wisdom you could leave and impart on the world? Okay. So, this is one of my favourite quotes. Remember the words, one day you will die. And let that strike fear from your mind and empower you to achieve all that you can be. I love it. Yeah. So remember the words, one day you would die and let that empower you to achieve all that you can be. And when I heard that, it was literally, well, the biggest fear that most of us have is death. A lot of people think we're going to live forever and they just think that this life's going to continue. And it's the fear of failure that holds most people back. But the biggest thing that's going to screw you is when you die, right? So if that, if you can, if you can not fear death, then you won't fear anything else. It all becomes insignificant in the face of death. So just go for it and and fail and, and fall down and get back up and fall down again and get back up and lose money and destroy relationships and <laughs> make money and make relationships and help people and do whatever you can do to be a good person, but to make an impact, leave a legacy. You can't be on the deathbed looking back and going, shit, I should have gone harder. I should have done more. You know, Les Brown says most of the talent is in the graveyard or the graveyard is full of amazing talent that never achieved anything and you know what Frankie the biggest thing I fear is getting there yeah because it's coming for all of us right and it's going I didn't become who I could have become because of either you know I let things get in the way or people hold me back or bad habits or whatever it may be that destroyed my potential and you know potential is the potential is um, everything for me 100 percent mate i agree i agree wholeheartedly with everything you said there but one one thing i want a final piece i want to leave in there for all of you that have stayed this long and listened i appreciate all of you is the fact of like you are going to have to choose your regrets Mm -hmm. because regrets are fucking inevitable but it's like what regrets can you live with and the ones that you can't live with the other ones you should relentlessly pursue and it's so fucking important Mm. Because you are going to have regrets and it's about choosing what regrets you're willing to have. Yeah. And that's it. That's the game. Man, you just made me think, you know, it's kind of one of the things that I'm watching happen every day is not capturing enough of my son's growth. Like I'm missing so much because of what I'm doing at work and what I'm pursuing. And I'm, I'm asking myself, honestly, am I happy with that or not? And... I have to build this legacy for me, but also for him. And if I don't do it, and I kind of sacrifice everything for him, like loads of parents do, loads of parents sacrifice who they are for their children, um, then I will never be the best version of me to be the be- to be able to be the best version for him. And well, it's the regret that he, I'm feeling he, he, already. Here's, here's my opinion on that mm. for what it's worth. It's simply this, right? If as a human being, you are not pursuing your ultimate purpose, you can't serve anyone else anyway. You couldn't serve your son anyway. Yeah. You, you couldn't, if you were at home all the time right now being a dad to Joseph, yep. right? You wouldn't be fulfilled. So you yep. would become a worse dad. Definitely. Right? I'd be miserable. You'd be miserable as fuck, which means you can't give your son the, mm. the, the, the even though you're giving him 100% of your time, you're not yep. giving him 100% of you. Yeah. Right? 
So you've got to know what part of, of, of Joseph's life you become best. Mm-hmm. Well, probably if we, we could probably both agree that you become best as a dad yeah. when, he's, when he's in his teenage years and you start teaching him about money and about, about all this yeah. stuff. And you, that's when you're going to have the most time with him and yeah. that's when you're going to add the most value to his life in those years. And that's, mm-hmm. what, that's, that's when you'll cement your relationship with your son because you've got to know what part of a child's life you're best at mm. and then know and willing to forgo that over here to be able to slot into it over there. Definitely. That's kind of what I've figured from, no, looking, no, no. from the you're outside smart. looking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's like, it's kind of, you can't be everywhere, man. Yeah. You can't, you're not, because if, if you're there when you, if you're there between four and fucking eight and don't miss stuff then, you're not going to be able to be the, the, the one that you can be when you're that. Yeah. You kind of like pick, 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 you're gonna have to pick some fucking. Yeah. Thing. You got to pick one. Exactly. And that's one of those. That's one of those. You're gonna regret that. Mm. But what are you gonna regret more? Not teaching him about. Not teaching him about money, yeah. success, and how to build a bigger business because yeah. you haven't built one. Because yeah, exactly. you're at home. Yeah. You're at home fucking about playing with Lego. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 kind of that's how it is, man. Definitely, but, but right. mate, I appreciate your fucking Thank time. Thank you, man. Excellent. Mate, e- epic, epic conversation, man. Yeah. I appreciate you being raw and real. No worries. Like you just literally. You've literally downloaded into people's ears how you can, you know, you know, go on that relentless pursuit, build this ten million pound business, lose it, yeah, go to nothing, go from from six grand back to back to now turn a four million pound, epic story, bro, and uh, congratulations, man. Thank you, bro, and, and look, thanks to everybody um, listening and for all of those in Australia. Um, love you guys, miss the country. It's an amazing place. He, he misses. He misses. Amazing all, place. He misses all the women at King's Cross. <laughs> Love you, women. Love you, guys. Do me a solid favor, guys. Like and subscribe. Please watch this on YouTube. If you listen on Spotify and Apple, um, leave me a review on Spotify. On leave me a review on Apple. Hit that star on Spotify. But even if you do listen on Spotify and Apple, please go and subscribe to my YouTube channel because I think watching the content and watching podcasts or just listening to it for YouTube is infinitely and it means a lot to me. It's my slowest growing channel by fucking a long way and I'd really appreciate all of you if you could just go over to YouTube hit that subscribe button and it helps me get the biggest and best guests for you in the town and everywhere else so much love to all of you thank you goodbye adios don't forget to subscribe to the Frankie Lee podcast